Hello. Hello. So welcome back, everybody, to The Weirdest Thing Podcast. Yep. It's officially The Weirdest <laughs> Thing again, because uh, yep. I'm back, baby. Yep. Uh, I'm Scotty Milder. I am Amelia Umpuero. I am broadcasting live and in person <laughs> <laughs> from the floor of my room at the Barter Inn in Abingdon, Virginia. Yeah. We, sh- we should clarify that like you are back, baby, but you are not like back, baby. Like you're still- um, Yes. Yes. I'm here for this episode, hopefully for a couple more. Then we've got some to cover, you know, while I'm finishing up here and making the drive home and everything. <clears throat> but I'm not back in the land of enchantment just yet. Yeah. It's going to be like end of August-ish, right? That's the yeah. that's the time frame. So, yeah. and we've got some real cool episodes coming out. I don't want to spoil them yet, but uh, particularly uh, some episodes that the horror fans are going to like, so. It'll, they'll like um, that's fun fantastic um, so, so uh how's uh how's virginia what's what's been going on Give virginia's virginia's been fine i sadly got covid i made it mm-hmm. about two and a half years uh yeah. without catching this thing but finally caught it as did a whole bunch of us here yeah. and that has sucked uh i'm actually really glad that we're we're doing this because <laughs> because i've been in like <laughs> isolation for nearly two weeks yeah um and that has sucked yeah you and you didn't get like super sick did you I did not. Um, <clears throat> I still have seal props. Sorry, y'all, if you hear me cough yeah. and sort of sniffle. I've got some lingering congestion and a little mm. bit of a cough still, but no, I did not get super sick. Um, and even I think relatively within the cases that happened around mine, I think I, I got a, a, a pretty, pretty mild case of it, which I don't know if that's like, I'm like, would I have rather have been, would it have been better if I like was in a delirium of illness? <laughs> And maybe I wouldn't have like noticed right. that the well, time let's, would, let's, it would have given me something to do. Let's, um, let's not let's not tempt fate and say uh, no. It yeah, would not that's have right. Been better. <laughs> not be knocking on wood. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just gonna Excuse leave me. the coughs in. That's our little like uh, COVID PSA. So right, exactly. Wear your masks. Get vaccinated. Get boosted. If you haven't at this point, I just I like I I don't. You're an idiot. I mean, I mean if you haven't at this point, I don't even know what to tell you. Like you're not gonna listen. You're probably not listening to this podcast. I'm That's sure we, true. We That's true. I don't think we've got a lot of like anti-vaxxers. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've got a lot of anti-vaxxers who were like, "What's this? What's this podcast? I'm gonna give this a listen." <laughs> they probably gave it to like the third episode where I said something about stupid white people. And then it stopped. probably didn't even. They probably looked at the synopsis of what the show <laughs> overall is about and were like, "Ugh, I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to know things that I don't already know." Get out of here. Reinforce my bad opinions. Wait, this isn't Joe Rogan? Fuck that. (laughs) Although, did you see that Joe Rogan had said that he's turned Trump down like a bunch of times in terms of going on his podcast? And that that he was just like, I don't, I don't like I'm not interested. I'm not interested in giving a guy a platform. And I was like, what? Well, yeah, Joe Rogan. I mean that was a hot take. I was not expecting that. Yeah, we don't need to go on a whole like Joe Rogan thing, but he is a weird no. fucking figure because he's not he's not like Alex Jones or one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Like he's not like fully alt right guy. 
he's just like douchebag who asks stupid people on the show <clears throat> to have like dumb conversations and like doesn't yes. push back on anything and then gets all like whatever cancel culture about stuff but he's he's not like yeah, a super like alt-right conservative he's just kind of, i think he's just kind of dumb and i'm sorry i'm he's saying just, that publicly he's just dumb he's he's he does a lot of the like devil's advocate and i'm right. like well i don't think we need another devil's advocate right now yeah we've, we got we've literally got like an entire political party that is like devil's advocate yeah you know are women people <laughs> exactly you know yeah i mean um, anyway that's all that needs to be said what else is going yeah. on virginia how's how other than covid how are like the shows and stuff going shows are a lot of fun you know we're having a good time covid screwed up the schedule so now sure. everything is like wacky Yeah, because like a bunch of people got it right oh yeah <laughs> i like everyone <laughs> And like nobody, but nobody got super sick, right? Uh, yes. Uh, like as, as far as I know, uh, like last that I've heard, everybody's is sick, but like mild, relatively mild this, cases. And just to reiterate, uh, every my understanding of the barter protocol is that everyone mm-hmm. needs to be boosted and vaxxed, right? Everybody's vaxxed and boosted. Yes. So, so like, vaccines maybe not work. a coincidence that like <laughs> no one got super sick. Just, just throwing right. it out there. Yeah. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, vaccines work. Science is real. Masks, masks work uh and all that good stuff yeah but so it's been good it's been it's you know the last 12 days have felt endless so i'm Mm -hmm. like i know there was like a lot of good stuff happening in the before times (laughs) (laughs) but let's also talk because you got to come down and visit and you got to sort of see everything yeah Yeah, so that Um, was fun so obviously this was back in april um, April. I drove out there with you. It was, it was yes. just a long rush of a drive. Like, right. really it was didn't, just. I mean, like, states. the only. We only, like, stopped and saw two things. We saw Cadillac Ranch outside of Amarillo, mm-hmm. um, which was super fun. We were there for, like, what, 20 minutes or something? It was yeah, not, like, a lot to do there. So. No, we got, we got some stickers and stuff. Yeah, there are some cars in, in the ground. Yes. And then we. we went to the Oklahoma City uh, bombing memorial. We did. We did see that, which was actually very, very cool. Very cool. Very, like, much more moving, I think, than I expected. Like, Yeah, yeah. I said the word cool, and then I was like, that's maybe not exactly the word that I want to use there. But it was a very, it was a very impactful memorial. Very well done. Very, just like a beautiful memorial. Very well done. And we also saw, because I was thinking about this, we also saw the Grand Ole Opry. (laughs) We did, which is in like a Dave and Buster's parking lot, which I, I yes. can't get over. <laughs> it is the weirdest thing. Um, uh, hooray! That's the name of the show. Hooray. But it was the it was the weirdest thing. Yeah, like I don't know what you and I were expecting, but as we were driving out there, we were like, "This has to be wrong." Yeah. <clears throat> well, because not only is it in a David Buster's parking lot, but you turn off the interstate, and there's like nothing there forever. You're like driving in the fucking woods or something. Yeah. And then and you then just come upon a mall. Yeah, that's the thing is that it's like in a mall. Right. Um, it's. It was so like incongruous. Like I didn't, mm. I, my brain was like, I don't understand what I'm seeing. 
we did discover like, i think you looked <clears> it up that evening where there was like an original grand Ole opry that's somewhere yes, in nashville is... that's like an old mm-hmm. building and it's like cool mm-hmm. but this one's not like super new it's like from the 70s or something yeah it's not it's not like it was like oh well you know they had to like the building collapsed in 2014 and so this is you know where they're like it's been right. there a minute yeah it's very strange it's it very was... strange it's somewhat disappointing <laughs> it, it, it was somewhat disappointing because it mm. felt like <clears throat> it had the feel of like oh god like a joe's crab shack <laughs> yeah. you know that you'd see at like you know that would be like at a very large mall in like florida right that's exactly right it was so like i it, i was like this is not like the church of country music like i'm just having a really hard time putting it all together in my yeah. head yeah it, it definitely was it was i don't know why i would have expected it to be less tacky i mean it's the grand Ole opry but it was like pretty tacky well um, i but i mean the thing is is like i did expect it to be less tacky because as much as we want to be like all <laughs> about country music and how we feel about it it's still country music it's like right. one of the actual um it's like one of the things that this country actually did kind of like create invent right yeah, yeah. and so no, like, that's right it feels so weird that it's like across from like a bass pro sports shop. <laughs> like it's so strange it's yeah. so weird <laughs> so that was uh but what else from before i talk about abingdon itself like uh-huh. other things uh just from the drive we were shockingly impressed by oklahoma city yeah oklahoma city was oklahoma city was a cool cool place yeah i and again i think i just went in with preconceptions of you you hear oklahoma city you think you know what that's going to be it was a cool like it felt like kind of a hipster town it was definitely not what i expected yeah you know like i think about what you were saying when we when we drove out of oklahoma city that morning that you were like here's like an alternative weekly newspaper. Here's like this, here's like that. Like there's a scene here. Mm -hmm. And then that was kind of the last scene we saw. Yeah, because then we hit, I mean, Oklahoma, I should say Western Oklahoma and the Texas panhandle mm -hmm, is like mm -hmm. not, it's not attractive country. But once you get past Oklahoma City, it was really pretty. Yeah, Um, really pretty. Like Oklahoma was sort of surprising as a whole. Mm-hmm. But then we got to Arkansas and got the fuck out of Arkansas as quickly as we could. It really felt like Arkansas did not want us. Yeah, there. it was just <laughs> the vibe of Arkansas. And it was funny, like driving to Oklahoma, like we did not realize that marijuana had been legalized. <clears throat> um, I think it's just medical marijuana is legalized in Oklahoma. Yes. So like it was like every 10 feet in Oklahoma was a billboard for a dispensary, which was like mm-hmm. unexpected. But then you get then you get to Arkansas and it's like Trump signs and Confederate flags and like, right and like a lot of Jesus died for your sins. Mm-hmm. It lived um, up to its reputation. Yeah, like, uh, life begins at conception. Mm-hmm. Right, billboards, lots so yeah, I of think, giant crosses. Right, oh, the giant crosses. Yeah, like mm-hmm. massive crosses. Massive. So I think we stopped at like one truck stop and then just got the fuck. Yeah, we were like, yeah. yeah. And then just, Tennessee, Tennessee wasn't so bad. Tennessee was mm-mm. fine. I felt like Grand Ole Opry was a disappointment. Virginia was gorgeous. Yeah, like dri- gorgeous. Just driving into Virginia, that was the prettiest part of the drive. And then, yeah, Abingdon, like you've talked about Abingdon for years. Uh, yeah. Because you had been there. When, when was it that you were there as a player? <laughs> uh, so I landed in Abingdon for the first time in like May of 2004. So, so like 18 years ago. ago. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and yes. I'm not sure. I knew it was a small town, and I think I expected it to be sort of quaint Virginia town, which it is. The thing I did not expect, I'm not sure why I didn't expect this. I think because hmm. I've been to other like repertory theater, like I've been to like I think in Creed, Colorado, there's a repertory theater up there, and like, mm-hmm. and they're like pretty small. And like, yeah, it, you know, a lot of people in the region know about it, but they don't seem like that big a deal. Barter clearly is a big deal. Like when yeah. you're in Abingdon, it's like, oh, like it's it's like the cultural focus of this town. Like, yeah, it's kind of the the bedrock of the town. And it, I'll just give you guys a quick little history lesson on Barter Theater. Um, <clears throat> so it turned 89 this year. Next year mm. will be its 90th birthday. It is one of the oldest continually running theaters in the United States. It's <laughs> it's currently on its fourth artistic director, which is, pr- if you know anything about like nonprofit theater is actually kind of a, a an anomaly. And it was started by a man named Robert Porterfield, who was from the area, was working as an actor in New York. And when the depression hit, he was like, well, nobody's going to the theater in New York. And there's a lot of people in that area of Virginia who have a lot of like goods, mm. you know, crops, animals, skills and stuff. So he basically came to came back to this area and started the barter theater with the idea that you could either pay the, I believe it was the 10 cent admission mm-hmm. or barter the equivalent in goods or services. Right. So lots of great stories about like people bringing like live pigs, <laughs> you know, and yeah. <clears throat> and all that stuff and people, you know, bartering like bushels of spinach and, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a tradition that they continue to this day day that like I don't know if it's once a year or a couple of times a year they will do things where you can bring in canned goods oh, and cool. and and essentially that is like your cost of admission they donate the proceeds to a food bank oh nice and all that kind of stuff but it's yeah I mean it is it is an institution um yeah. and a, a major driving economic force uh not just in the yeah. town but in the region as a whole what I think I didn't expect fact is i knew there was barter theater mm-hmm. i didn't realize there was like barter theater and then there's like the second stage it's a whole other building and then yeah. there's just like buildings throughout town that it's like there's the yeah. administration <laughs> building this is where like this is the barter inn where people live and like you uh-huh. know. and then like even your room at the barter inn was like super nice we walked up <laughs> and it's like nice furniture i'm like oh this is like i don't know why i never realized it was as big a thing as it is like i knew it was a like very respected yeah old theater but it's like it's it's a big deal. Like, well, I think there's clearly I, some money there. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that like the inner workings of American theater. Like most people don't really know what that means because mm-hmm. when they think of American theater, they think of Broadway, um, right. and that's such a that's such a whole other animal. And one of the other things that makes Barter really unique is that it is one of, if not possibly the last remaining resident repertory company mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there's a lot of other professional theaters who have a a repertory company but it's like there's the cast of you know guys and dolls who's performing at this space and right. like on this stage and then there's the cast of like uh, a doll's house that's performing on this stage and then there's you know 12th night over on this stage and then there's right. like the youth theater over on this stage but they don't intermingle barter and so it's it's an interesting thing because even with discussions with the union and stuff like equity is a little like we don't i don't get like what you guys are doing yeah. because it's just not really happening anywhere else it is 
about 11 months of consistent work, which is also unheard of. Mm -hmm. Um, So like when you sign a contract here, if you're a resident company member, like you sign it for the season. It's not like Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, well, I'm playing playing Maria in nine to five. And then I have a set. It's like one big, long contract for the entire season. That's like your year. <clears throat> yes. At least. Yeah. Yes. And so all types of bargaining stuff is is just different because it's just a different animal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was really yeah. cool. It was really cool to see it. Unfortunately, I, I drank a green tea that did not agree with me. <laughs> so we did have to pull over so I could like barf up some green tea at one point. But yes. other than that, like you were driving me around uh, Abingdon and just showing me your old stomping grounds and stuff. It was yeah. really cool because it was like, oh, this is a whole... Amelia life before I ever knew you. Yeah. 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 I had a, I had another buddy who came sort of with that same intention of like, like I need to, like, we need to close the circle. I need to see like where it all started. And so that's been really cool. And yeah, it's been very, very cool to be back. The town has grown in the nearly 20 years that I've been Mm. gone. They have a Walmart now. Um, (laughs) They didn't. When I was here, you had to drive to exit seven to go to the Walmart, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and some new stuff is popping up, but yeah, it's been very, very cool to be back. And it's been cool to be doing doing these shows and getting to work with a lot of people that I knew from back in the day and meeting mm. a lot of new people and all that stuff. It's just a very, it is, it, it, it's funny because it's like the fact that technically what barter theater does and what I do with my theater company in Albuquerque, they are technically the same thing, but it's, I mean, the world's different. they don't, yeah, they, I mean, they barely exist in the same universe. Right. Well, and you guys are, <laughs> I mean, not only is it like a matter of scale, but I think <clears throat> DCRT has like grown into like, you are definitely doing your own thing. It is not very much. So you're not yeah. trying to do what barter does very much, so. very much like traditional theater. And you've definitely, moved into some different directions yeah i did get to see a show while i was there yes you did yes um it was directed by uh our friend uh, i'm just gonna name him john hardy okay um (laughs) who (laughs) just if anyone has seen my movie uh dead billy john hardy plays billy in the movie um yes he does and it was cool it was kind of cool got to talk to him a little bit it was kind of cool seeing him in like his environment because I've only ever known him like coming into Albuquerque to do things. Yeah. Um. So that was kind of cool. It was yeah. It was just it was a really cool experience. Um, yeah. I'm I'm glad I was able to make that drive out there with you. I wish I could go back for your drive back, but I'm actually going to be going to Texas for a horror convention around. That's the fun. That so, sounds fun. That sounds like yeah. a good time. I'm not looking forward to that drive back. It's just really long. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. Oh, we had drive. fun. But I mean, it's always good when we do a long drive because I mean, as I think anyone who listens to the podcast would understand, like we just never shut up. Yeah, we, we just, just never we, stop talking. We literally we, really, we knew that from like our drives out to LA, but like this was like a 20 some hour drive. And it was like it was an interesting test to see like, are we ever gonna run out of stuff to talk about? And we, we did not. <laughs> I think there was like a brief moment driving into Nashville. And I think it was because we were both a little tired. It had been silent for like 30 seconds. And you were like, did we run out of stuff to talk about? And I was <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we're just tired. Um, yeah. Well, we were trying to figure out where we were going and stuff too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was like terrified because I was like, I have COVID. I definitely have COVID. Um, and I did not have COVID. I but, waited. But I waited until later. I got here. Yeah. Yep. To get it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're on the <clears> mend. <throat> uh, I do want to talk very briefly about, uh, I know at least one thing you did during your COVID isolation, because uh-huh. you got me doing the same thing. Like, <laughs> the biggest, most ridiculous waste of time in oh the world. Oh my God. 
is the UK's Love Island. On oh Google. my God. <laughs> just an, uh, just absolute and utter chaos. And actually, I, mean, I think I got more into it than you because I, I'm actually watching another season now. Uh-huh. Like you, I think you only watched season three. Am I? Yes. I had to, I had to, to back away from it. I, I think, I think if for no other reason, other it was like kind of making me feel bad about myself. So yeah, I was well, like, I need to step away. I will say, so you got me into watching season three of Love Island. And I was like, you were kind of describing, I was like, oh, that sounds kind of fun. I'll, I'll give this a shot, but I don't watch a lot of stuff like that usually. So mm-hmm. I was like, not expecting it just to be the fucking like soul swallowing time suck that it was. But oh I will God. say, because I threw out, we were supposed to record yesterday, but I threw my back out. So I ended up watching mm-hmm. season five. No, but just to let you guys know, these seasons are not like 13 episodes. They're like, they're like 51 episodes yeah. <laughs> long. Yeah. And, they're they're, and not like 20 minutes, like they're an hour. Oh like, my God. So yeah. long. But like, yes, you got me. I do want to talk a little bit about season three and compare it like you were saying how it was making you feel kind of bad about yourself yeah i would recommend not watching season five then which is the one i'm on now because the thing about season three of love island and i think everyone kind of knows the premise of love island it's a bunch of like very hot influencer types get thrown in a villa together in a villa yes in a villa um and they get paired up and then it's like a love dating show and they bring new people it's, in as spoilers and they have challenges yeah it, it really is like if you did the hunger games but made it with dating instead of well like would, hunting each other i agreed with you when you said that but then watching season five made me realize so season three is where we started uh-huh. season three weirdly has a lot of heart you know, it's all manufactured, stupid fake reality show heart. Right. But it's like, there are likable people on season three. There's a bromance in particular that is oh my just God. like joy so pure. Yeah. <laughs> so pure. <laughs> season five is like all of the Hunger Gamesy cringe of season three, but like uh-huh. amped up to like an impossible degree and none of the heart. Like um. I'm... I'm not sure how many episodes in I am at this point, but I'm fairly deep into it. And at this point, I'm only watching it because it's a car crash. And I think it might be the end of Love Island for me. <laughs> I actually, like, what I realized is, like, I don't enjoy all the, like, intrigue and drama as much as I kind of enjoy, like, people forming friendships. And, like, that. yeah. that's the stuff I enjoyed in the third season that we watched. Like, there's yeah. almost none of that in this season. So, Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, if you didn't feel like you could keep going after the third season i don't know about other seasons of it but yeah, like, I, I would say don't go into season five i started season five because i did a lot of googling and they were like oh season five is the best season and it's clearly it's because it's the car crash of a season because it's the car crash of the season yeah it's i mean consider it if you need some like brain cheetos it's definite um, brain cheetos <laughs> Yeah, but real fast, I'm going to talk about two other shows. Just mention, just a recommendation corner. The Offer, which I had a lot of fun watching. Mm. Um, um, It's a Paramount Plus show. Mm -hmm. Um, Really great. It's about the making of The the Godfather. Right, right, right. I did not know how fraught that whole thing was. Oh, it's it's a crazy. I've been wanting to watch that because it is like the whole backstory of the making of that movie and the like people's careers being on the line. Like- oh my god! And 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 so funny because it wasn't supposed to work. Nobody no. was betting on that movie. Everybody was like, "This is fucking dumb." Al Pacino was a nobody. Right, um, they were know, trying to like cast a, he was like, like a Robert- theater kid from New York. Well, they were trying to cast like Robert Redford in that role. 
stuff. Yeah, there was a there was a whole a whole bunch of stuff where it was like what and like Frank Sinatra was like super pissed mm-hmm. about it because he said it like defamed Italian Americans. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and, and a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> well, and it, I really do want to watch that because you know just being the like you know the film former film student. Yes. That I am. Like, you know, I know a lot of that history. But also, I've read the book, The Godfather, you know, that the movie is based on. And the mm-hmm. thing is, like, you would not read that book and think it would become, like, one of the most celebrated films of all time. Because the book is garbage. Like, it is. It's fun, <laughs> but it is trash. It's also long, right? It's long. And it is, yeah. like, trash. There's a whole, I'm just going to, like, put this out there. There's a whole section in the middle about a woman uh, and her vagina surgery. Like just in the middle of the book because her right. vagina is too big for her penises. Like it, I mean that's, that's not that's a thing. The book. That's, <laughs> but that's the book. That's the book right. that you're that turned into the Godfather. <clears throat> you know. Yeah, the guy who plays Miles Teller, who of course we talked about in our episode when we talked about Whiplash, is I've been talking to Scotty about this. Is like a full grown man now. <laughs> I also watched yeah, him in the new Top Gun weird. movie, and I was like. Like you're a man. You you really you really dug Top Gun, right? I had a blast. <laughs> Top Gun, the new Top Gun is so much fun. Yeah, it's 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 a hell of a good time. It's like mm-hmm. there are a couple of uh what's the word I'm looking for? Intellectual properties, I guess, from like the 80s mm-hmm. that are coming back. You know, Top Gun, Cobra Kai is another one that's sort of capitalizing mm-hmm. uh, on on yeah. Karate Kid and stuff. And I feel like they're doing it. It's they're doing it so well. There's yeah. definitely like nods to the originals. I mean, it's Top Gun, so like it takes itself pretty seriously, but yeah. it's still a hell of a good time. You, you were stunned that I had never seen Top Gun. Oh my god! I I mean <laughs> I still am stunned, but. I think the new Top Gun is better than the original. That's Top what everyone's Gun. saying. And I will say, like, the only reason I've never seen Top Gun, it wasn't like a like, I don't watch that trash kind of thing. It was just right. like, one of those just like missed it for whatever reason, never got right. around to it. Keep right. thinking I should watch it at some point and then never I probably will because I have heard nothing but good things about the new one, which surprises it's... me, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, you could watch like I don't go watch like the trailer for the original Top Gun (laughs) and then go watch. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like (laughs) as a completist, I probably, I mean, that's an hour and a half, two hours out of my day. Like I'll watch it at some point, but what's you said there was another show. Yes. So the other show that I'm watching is Blackbird, which is on Apple TV Hmm, um, starring Taron Edgerton. Is that how you say it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you this tweet, Scotty. Okay. <laughs> okay. Taron Edgerton, he was in he's you know, he was in the Kingsman movies. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> you know, he played Elton John. And so the series Blackbird that's on Apple TV, it's Taron Edgerton, the late great Ray Liotta. I think this mm. was like one of the last things he did. Oh, um, okay. RIP. Greg Kinnear, and there's some other people in it. But it's and it's based on a true story. Basically, Taron Edgerton plays a drug dealer who gets thrown in prison for ten years, mm. and uh, <clears throat> some I don't know I don't know what the I don't know if they're cops if they're FBI I don't know what the fuck they are, but they come to him and they're basically like, hey, there is a guy in a prison in Missouri. I think it's Missouri. It's like Missouri, mm. Minnesota, 
somewhere, one of those places. And they're like, there's a guy there and we believe he like, he's confessed to a couple of murders, but there's like a lot of more bodies uh-huh. and we need him to confess to those murders because like he absolutely did it. So you need to go in there and befriend him and get a confession out of him. Right. And so I think there's only been like, t- I think only two episodes are out. It'll be released weekly, but I'm going to send this tweet to Scotty because Okay, if you have if you have an idea of what Taryn Edgerton looks like in your brain, <laughs> I'm going to send you this. I just texted it to you. He is ripped in this show, like ups- upsettingly so. It's a gift, so press it and like watch the gif. Oi. Yeah, yeah. We're, I'm gonna maybe on social media I'll post this gif. <laughs> an Emmy to this camera person, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean. Homeboy has like an eight pack. I mean, it is. Yeah, that is not because I, you know, I know him mostly because I know his face. That is not the body I expected from. No, I I mean, it's one of those things where I'm like, that's impressive. That's nice. Homeboy put in some work. (laughs) So props for him. So go and watch it. So that uh, all of that work, all those chicken breasts and steamed broccoli that he (laughs) ate, uh, make it worth it for him. Yeah, but it's a very good show. Okay, so we've done all that. We've got all caught up. Should we should we hop into it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, fantastic. Guys, I really wish that I had like an uplifting and fun story for you today. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Um. Welcome back. But Scotty, now we're talking about it. And it is a little bit, we do have a little bit of like some badass women stories here. And uh, so unless you've been living, you know, like under a rock, you'll know that a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade saying, basically being like, there is no like, uh, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's like nothing in the constitution that says that you have the right to an abortion, blah, 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 being a bunch of of a-holes about that. And so I am going to talk to you about, I think we know, I think everybody sort of at least, if you say Roe versus is Wade people are like yeah 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 like abortion like right. yeah but I don't know how much people actually actually know about the case and the the people who were involved in it so today I'm going to okay. talk to you about Linda Coffee Roe versus Wade's forgotten heroine okay um, so sources for this are Vanity Fair, Wikipedia, an episode of the You're Wrong About podcast, which is actually uh, the entire episode is about Roe versus Wade. That episode came out in 2018 okay. um, and is definitely worth a listen if you want some deeper understanding of this, this case. I got information from Planned Parenthood, National Geographic, and the Washington Post. Okay, so Linda Nelene Coffey. She was born on Christmas Day, 1942 in Houston, mm-hmm. Texas. Um, her family would eventually settle in the city of Dallas. Right. Coffey grew up in the church. She was Southern, like her family was Southern Baptist. Her grandfather was a deacon. She went to Sunday school. She sang in the choir. She, you know, went to church camp. She played softball. By all accounts, she was like a plucky and cerebral and shy girl. Um, According to the Vanity Fair article, Coffee was shown a dangers of abortion film when she was in high school. Um, And if you don't know what I mean by that, there were these videos that were like loose women having abortions. And then it would show them like, you know, like going insane and like crashing a car or whatever. I was going to say, is it kind of like the driver's ed videos where it was all just about like, it's like faces of death, but for for abortions. (laughs) God. 
yeah. And, and all of it really was, it was not about like, Hey, like this is what happens. And this is like, it was really like, you'll go insane with regret yeah. and then you'll become a loose woman. And you know, it was, it was really stuff like that. So she gets shown this like dangers of abortion video in high school. And she was like, what the fuck? And Mm -hmm. where she was coming from is that she was like, so it's fine for dudes to have sex before marriage, but it's not okay for women to have sex before marriage, which is something that like anybody who among us has not had that. I was going to say like, (laughs) thank God we've outgrown that mentality. Yeah. So she gets shown that. And like I said, she's sort of like, what the heck? I'm going to take a quick detour. We're going to talk about abortion laws in the United States okay. to give you guys a little bit of uh, a little bit of background. So prior to the mid 1800s, abortion wasn't illegal in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like it was barely controversial. Um, yeah. So from like colonial days up until when leaders started deciding to like legislate women's bodies, mm-hmm. <clears throat> abortion was pretty much... <sighs> I'm going to say allowed, but it also, it was like not really thought of up to quickening Mm. and the quickening is noticeable fetal movement. It's an archaic term. And in like, in the way back days, uh, the quickening was considered the only reliable means of proving pregnancy. Interesting. I always thought that was a word invented by the movie Highlander. No, 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 (laughs) no. It was how there are a couple of like really I had considered doing the history of the pregnancy test for an episode. And it's really interesting because old wives tales were, it's like, if you pee on straw or hay and something sprouts from that spot, that was sort of like an old time, like old wives tale pregnancy test. And that's the very accurate. Well, this is the thing is that Scotty made his like his skeptical (laughs) face about it. But the thing is, when you take a pregnancy test, it's measuring these like, I think, um, proteins in your urine. Right. And the thing is, is that those proteins will cause stuff to sprout. So it actually was I can't say how accurate it was, but it was actually a somewhat reliable pregnancy test. That okay, I would, but really like old wives' tale, yeah, really yeah. like old wives' tale type of it's stuff. So fascinating how like, a little bit of a sidebar, but just like those kind of old wives' tales and folk remedies that always uh-huh. sound like bullshit. Right. A lot of times it's like, well, they they were like experimenting and discovered something. Like they may yeah. not have understood why, but like sometimes there is like a basis in truth. Yeah, and I think like that stuff, like seeing that that they were like, oh, stuff is sprouting from that, sort of led to the invention of the modern day pregnancy test. Interesting. Okay. Yes, but I don't know. Maybe if like you didn't have any straw around or like whatever. <laughs> Right, if you're the, in like a Boston brownstone, you're who knows, yeah, or I don't know, Greenland or something. <laughs> um, noticeable fetal movement was the way that you could be like, oh, I'm definitely with child, right. and that's also, you know, we're talking through medieval times and ancient times and everything. Like they just they had no way of knowing, knowing sure. yeah. that you were pregnant until you were like, here's the baby and it's moving. Right now, the quickening usually happens between four to six months, so we're looking at second trimester. Uh And so, yeah, before that, they were like, if you take something and it causes your body to menstruate and causes you to like shed your uterine lining, like that's fine because whatever's in there is right. Well, I was going to say that. Yeah, that's pretty late because I'm just thinking of like pregnant women that I've known, like when you can feel the baby kick, that's pretty far along. Yeah. I mean, they've got like a, they've got a bump. They've got a noticeable bump. Yeah. So that was, that was the mindset is that like, you know, if you lost your baby or did something in order to lose your baby before the quickening, they were like, right. It's like, it's like a nosebleed. 
you know, right. the church was the only body that frowned upon abortion. And even then it was only because it took abortion as a sign of illicit or premarital sex, not murder. Interesting. Yes. So yeah. they like, they really were like, we shouldn't be having abortions because you shouldn't be having sex. Yeah. Which I guess is not surprising. That was which is not position. surprising. Yeah. Which is not surprising. Was but it specifically it was- the Catholic church or was it like. It just said the church. (laughs) So do with that information what you will. Um, And again, this is in within the United States. Yeah. If you look at newspapers from the 17 and early 1800s, you will find like plenty of ads for herbal and medicinal abortion inducing methods. Mm -hmm. Commonly known. A lot of it was, oh, what's it called? Patent medicine, which is, uh, I think I talked about it a little bit when I was talking about Coca-Cola and the accidental food thing. Patent medicine is is it's quackery a little bit so there was a lot of stuff that it was like take this and it i think it was hold on i'm gonna get to that here in just a sec okay so yeah you've got newspapers that are like here's herbs and here's medicines and stuff that'll induce an abortion and at like during this time abortions were chemical rather than surgical Mm, so now we have both we have chemical and surgical Um, but at that time it was like take this tincture do this thing whatever and basically these things would promote menstruation and essentially like clear the uterus. Right. So really kind of like no frills and everybody was like, it's a fact of life. Like you do what you got to do. Right. Another thing to know is that in 1835, the average woman would give birth six times. So like as many women gave birth more than six times (laughs) as did less. Um, and it was commonly known. I'm just trying to wrap my head around. Yeah. And this is something that like, I know that it is not known. And it was something that there were a lot of threads that came out after the thing was leaked. Remember, because it got leaked back in May. Right. Mm, Right. Um, and And a lot of people started talking about like, hey, if you don't know, here are all of the horrific things that can happen to your body during a completely normal pregnancy. Right. Down to things like pregnant people losing their teeth. Mm-hmm. I had seen something that it was like your body needs calcium to grow a baby, but then somebody was like, "That's not exactly why." So I don't know the. I, look, I'm not a scientist. I just I don't know, know the exact I've, science of it. I've had a couple of friends who've had babies who had. Well, I don't remember what they call it, but it's like that. Is it preeclampsia? It's like the extreme hypertension where, like, you uh-huh. basically are you can't <clears throat> move because it's like too much <clears throat> stress on your body. Like, yes, that's intense. Um, yeah, and the thing is, is that like that is perfectly normal and not the weirdest or grossest thing that happens again to your body during a completely normal pregnancy right there's stuff there's my mom's gonna roll her eyes at me saying this but there's (laughs) stuff that it's like like i heard it referred to as cheeseburger vagina (laughs) and it's basically it's basically what happens is that your vulva swells and Uh then it looks like a cheeseburger it looks like a burger um but yeah that like it just it like you know, that makes uh, sense. yeah, what happens to your organs and your pelvis during pregnancy is pretty right. intense tearing and all that stuff that happens in childbirth. Women at this point knew that having a baby, if they survived the pregnancy, mm-hmm. the chances of them dying during pregnancy were just as good as them being permanently maimed during pregnancy. Right. I've There's, always been. Sorry, just a real quick sidebar. I've always been fascinated by this because it's like, are humans unique in the animal kingdom in terms of 
the havoc that pregnancy can wreak on a body i'm like i'm just curious how it like works in other animal species yeah i don't know it always seems like other species are sort of like here's my baby and then i'm gonna drop it out and then like you know yeah 30 seconds uh, later mother and child are like you know running yeah it just um, seems like something <clears throat> something happened with human evolution that made the process <laughs> real hard and weird yeah and also left us with something that was just basically like a blob of need you know what yeah. i mean like you watch videos of like elephants or giraffes giving birth and those babies drop like several feet to the ground and then, and then, then literally get up and run around. Yep. And then they're up and running and everybody's like, cool. All right, let's move to the watering hole. Like no biggie. Yeah. So yeah, 100%. It seems like for all of this, like we were created in God's image and stuff. I don't know, guys. Seems, <laughs> seems like, well, yeah, seems like faulty design. I mean, you're saying blob of need. And I feel maybe this is just like American culture, but I feel like we're all blobs of need until we're like, 28 minimum <laughs> i mean a little bit you yeah. know what i mean i mean i'm i mean I'm, my pa- I'm, I'm 44 and my parents would probably still call me a blob of need i mean so. definitely emotionally i am absolutely a blob of need yeah. um so i feel that i, I think i think we that. found our title for this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely 100 <laughs> yeah it is it does seem like that it was like unintelligent design for how we <laughs> how we did the whole right. childbirth and and pregnancy thing so yeah so that's what's going on so you've got a lot of women that are like hey i know that i'm like just i'm i'm like i have an equal shot of surviving this pregnancy and this labor as i do of not yeah um and so it makes sense that they were like and so you know some of us are just gonna like have to like we're gonna have to take care of some stuff yeah take the tincture and call it a day you know and move on wait and see how the next year's crops do before you decide to have another baby um i should also state that this is said in the um you're wrong about podcast but as long as we have had fire as long as we have had meat women uh, have been controlling the way that the way and if they become pregnant right ancient 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 times women were making were fashioning as cervical caps essentially out of lard and wax and mm-hmm. i mean like it's it's not something new right so there's that. The other thing you need to understand as well is that prior to the Civil War, gynecology and obstetrics was firmly the realm of the midwife. Mm-hmm. And midwives prior to the Civil War were considered skilled medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, you can even talk to people like nowadays. And it's like, if you're like, yeah, I'm using a midwife, there's a bit of like, mm, okay. But yeah. this stuff was the realm of midwives. Like they were women mm-hmm. who had had births. They had attended a lot of births. They knew how everything worked and they, you know, were skilled and trained in this area. Well, I've known, um, I mean, I've known a couple of midwives and like, I would say, I, I know that like people don't see it the same way today, but they are skilled medical professionals. I mean, it is. Yes. It's not just like you're sitting there with a catcher's mitt hoping for the best. I mean, it's like. Yeah. And the thing is, is that like, you know, in a perfect world, you would be able to have. I should also be clear that like at this time, midwives were women. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now you can have midwives of any and all genders. And that's super cool. But at this time, we're really talking. It was it was people were like, this is the realm of the woman. Nobody needs to be in there. And it was also seen like no men wanted to be there for childbirth. Like, yucky. You know, you guys are such fucking pussies about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Seriously. So women of all races and ethnicities were midwives. Like Mm -hmm. across the board, you found midwives in all cultures and they provided all manner of gynecologic care 
they delivered babies, they provided abortions, they assisted in family planning, all of that good stuff. Right. About half of the women who provided reproductive care in this country were black women with a mm. good number of them being enslaved black women. Um, mm. <clears throat> you need to understand that this is a whole other issue because enslaved black women were seen as the property of white men and therefore had no right to reproductive freedom because any children that they found themselves carrying were the property of slaveholders. Yeah, it's fucking gross. In news that will surprise absolutely no one, (laughs) (laughs) around the time of the Civil War, male doctors, with the help of the Catholic Church, go on to lead a movement to take the authority to provide reproductive care from midwives and nurses and place it firmly in the hands of white male doctors. Mm -hmm. In 1857, a gynecologist named Horatio Storer started basically like like crying about what he called (laughs) criminal abortion. Um, And he claimed that abortion was immoral, that it caused derangement in women because it interfered with nature and that it lowered like the, the practice of abortion lowered the profession of gynecology, like as a whole, why he thought it had anything to do with him or his job. God only knows. (laughs) Um, Horatio Storer obviously has severe main character syndrome. (laughs) So, so he rounds up other doctors to start drumming up public support of criminalizing abortion. And when was um, this again? This is around 1857. So this okay. is leading into the civil war. Right. Another thing to know, you know, we talk about this a lot that if you take any issue and peel it down, it's always like at the end of it is misogyny and white supremacy. Right. <laughs> um, and you have to know, you have to know that anti-abortion stance is deeply, deeply rooted in white power, deeply, deeply entrenched in the fucking replacement conspiracy, the great replacement conspiracy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Scotty's just massive sigh. (sighs) Can you give me the great replacement conspiracy in two sentences or less? Yeah, I've actually... (laughs) I don't know if I can do it in two sentences. I've actually been, uh, I'm planning on maybe doing, not specifically the Great Replacement, but I want to talk about, uh, as as ties into anti-Semitism. So I'm thinking of doing it on the podcast (laughs) at some point, but it's basically (laughs) the idea that there is a conspiracy, of course, orchestrated by Jews. Right. um, To depress white birth rates (laughs) while we're bringing in foreigners and brown people and increasing their birth rates for reasons which right. have never logically been explained to me in no, any way that makes any fucking sense. But no, it's the reasons are basically like to take over. And I'm like, to take over what? Well, and I'm like, I'm not sure. Yeah. How that helps taking over. Anyway. Like, it's just yeah. like the logic breaks. Down. I mean, yeah, the logic does absolutely break down. But this is where yeah. every like great replacement is where everything it's racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, yes. anti-choice, like it all it all funnels it, into the one nexus, which is the right, great replacement theory. Which is great replacement theory. Otherwise Here's known the as Fox News is prime time. Yeah, exactly. Here is the thing about great replacement theory that is it's this is the thing where I'm like. You cannot be this fucking stupid. And the Mm -hmm. reason I say that is because, (laughs) (laughs) okay, there is the idea that we, that like these people are really scared that white women are not having enough babies. And I Uh don't know if anybody saw this recently, but Tucker Carlson apparently went on some show and was like, the group of people I hate more than anything in this world is liberal white women. 
Uh-huh. And I'm so. sure, and I'm sure that his reason for this is because we're, they're not being good, you know, white women and, brood and mares. yeah, they're not being good brood mares. But the thing that yeah. cracks me up about this is so they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make abortion illegal so that white women can't have abortion. And I'm like, but also black, brown, immigrant, queer, like all of the rest of everybody else who can have a child well, is also going to be having more children. There are already more of us than there well, are of white white people so like what are you doing the the well-to-do white woman will always be able to have the abortion precisely they'll they'll find they will have the resources to have an abortion it may be harder but it'll happen uh the people who won't be able to are going to be like black and black and brown women yeah and but you know like do you see what I'm saying? The thing is, is that if you're like, we want to up the birth rate of white people. So we're going to make abortion impossible for all childbearing people to access. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're just going to continue to have the same problem. Well, it, but it's, it's going to actually, I mean, if you consider it a problem, which it's not a problem, but if you it's call not a it problem, a problem, right, it actually gets worse because things really won't change that much for the women Tucker Carlson want to be having babies, but right. the women he doesn't want to have babies are going to be having more babies. Right. So it's, it's like, <laughs> even by your own stupid racist logic, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like it, it, it is incredible yeah, to Like, me. I don't know what they think, like black, brown, immigrant, et cetera, fill in the blank, childbearing people. Like they're just going to sit this one out and they're going to be like, well, I guess I just won't have. Unless we go back to your earlier episode where we're talking about forced sterilizations, which maybe right, step which is, two. Right, which is not outside of the realm of possibility and is absolutely something that we need to be aware of if they want to control whether or not you can have, like people want to control whether or not you can have a baby, they're going to do that, but by whatever means possible. Right. So there's that and there's that weird... Okay, I don't want to fucking talk about these stupid people anymore. Okay, so um, <laughs> end of story. Scotty's yeah. turn. Just kidding. <laughs> um, okay, so by 1910, abortion was banned nationwide. Right. Um, and again, like we were just talking about, in actuality, this is only preventing poor, often black and brown women from accessing abortion right. as specifically wealthy white women are always going to be able, they will have the means to travel to other states and even countries to get abortions. Uh, right. Apparently back in the day, I don't know exactly when this was, I don't know if this was like 1950s, 1960s or earlier, but apparently Japan was a huge abortion destination. Really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very common abortion destination back in the day. Yeah. So Another that's clearly fun- rich people doing that because- Yes. Yeah. Like it's absolutely rich people doing this. Another fun fact, abortions have been steadily declining in number since 1980. We'll see what Mm -hmm. happens now. But in 1980, they'd reached a peak of 30 abortions per 1000 women. Uh, In 2018, that was down to 11.3 per 1000 women. Mm -hmm. That's that's a big, that's a big drop. It's a big drop. Also, I just want to go ahead and have it said here. I'm using the word women or woman a lot in this. Um, I of course understand that it is not only women that can have babies. So I'm trying to intersperse it, but have like having to say childbearing people for brevity's sake, please understand that I'm, I might just say women, uh, (laughs) every now and then or the story i have to say it a lot or this my story is going to be like four hours long okay additionally i want you to also know that 92.2 percent of abortions were performed at 13 weeks or less so this Mm. fucking scary story about (laughs) 
Scotty and I, ta- we talked about this the other day, right? Where yeah. people are like, they're doing abortions at the time of delivery. And it's like, that's not an abortion. That no. is murder. That like, yeah. it, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anywhere. Never. Well, it's it's ever. such a straw man. Like the whole like late term abortion debate. It's such a straw man because I'm sorry. There's no woman or person who is giving birth who is waiting until the moment of birth to be like, you know what? Should I? Nah. (laughs) Yeah. Like if there's an abortion that happens that late in the pregnancy, it's because that was a baby that was wanted and something has gone wrong. And this is like something that needs to happen. Like, yes. Yeah. Um, yes, this is, yeah, guys, it, it doesn't happen. So I know that like you, you know, you or your aunts and uncles or your mom or your fucking Bible study leader, whatever the fuck wants to create these like boogeyman stories mm-hmm. of people getting abortions, <laughs> abortions, like yeah. as they're giving birth, it doesn't happen. It, it's, it doesn't. I mean, it's like, it it's just like doesn't. the trans predator in the bathroom thing. It's just like, you're making up a thing. Like that's that's a made up thing. I'm sorry. And it's yes. like, yes, anecdotally, I'm sure you'll find one instance someday of some, you know, whatever. But like statistically speaking, you're just making shit up. Yeah. So stop lying about it, essentially. I mean, they're not um, going okay. to, anyway. they're not going to, but just know that I'm I've got my eye on you. <laughs> um <laughs> uh, so by 1967, abortion was a felony in yeah. nearly every state, with every state having provisions that like this is the thing, right? Is that they were like abortion is a felony, but we do have provisions for the health of the mother or pregnancies that resulted from rape. Mm-hmm. So they were like, okay, we're not like complete monsters. Like there's gotta be something that's going on here, which is different from what is happening now uh, right. in a lot of States, which brings us back to Miss Linda coffee. Okay, okay. So she enrolls in rice university in 1961. And she's sort of like, she's not really sure what she wants to do. She's like, I could go into like math. I could go into medicine. I could maybe study German. And she mm-hmm. ends up taking the L. LSATs kind of on a lark. <laughs> She's like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try the LSATs. She, you know, passes, I think with like flying colors. And in 1964, she graduates with honors from UT Austin school of law. And she's like, I'm going to go into domestic relations law. She Mm. makes that decision after interning at a legal aid society that helped disadvantage women Mm. at this time. It's super rare that a law firm would offer a woman a job. Yeah. Um, Mid sixties. Yeah. 1964, Texas. Right. So, you know, at this time in Texas, a woman needed the backing of a man to rent an apartment. Uh So I'm sure they weren't too keen on having, having, you know, little ladies do stuff like (laughs) lady lawyers. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's a lady lawyer. So without an offer, you know, she didn't, she didn't have a job at a law firm. So coffee went to work at the Texas legislative council where she helped draft legislative bills. (laughs) From there, she clerked for Sarah Hughes, who was the first female federal judge in the state of Texas. Hughes was known because she was the judge who swore in LBJ on Air Force One after Kennedy was assassinated. Mm, Okay. Yes. She also fought to secure women equal pay and the right to serve on juries. So she was, Mm. she was, she was fighting the good fight. She taught her clerks 
to take stances. She was like, you have to have, like, you have to have an opinion. You have to argue this from a stance. Yeah. It's not <clears throat> like, don't hedge your bets. Yeah, maybe this or maybe that. Yeah. Right. So coffee goes to work for her. And it's like that education that she received from Hughes that led coffee to help her friend, a man by the name of Henry McCluskey, argue the case that would challenge Texas's laws against sodomy. And that was a case that hinged on the person's right to privacy. Um, McCluskey was a gay man. Mm -hmm. Linda Coffey was a gay woman. Okay. And Coffey did this work on this sodomy case in private because she wasn't out at the time. Mm. Um, She says, quote, I wasn't about to touch that publicly. I would not have had enough nerve to even be the counsel of record. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I can understand. Yeah. Uh, Again, 1960s Texas. In September of 1969, Coffee comes across the People versus Belus. I think that's how you say it. Uh, People versus Belus case. This was a case that was located in California and it involved a doctor who'd referred a woman to an illegal illegal abortion provider. Mm -hmm. The California Supreme Court basically was like, yeah, the state abortion law is void on the grounds that it's constitutionally vague and that it violated the due process section of the 14th Amendment. And at this point, a light bulb goes off in Coffee's head. She's like, wait a tech. So she knew that she could use the same argument to tackle Texas's abortion laws, but in order to do that, she needed an unhappily pregnant woman. Mm. And like, where the fuck was she going to find that? Right. <laughs> that somebody who was like willing to be like outwardly, openly, publicly, like, I'm I don't pregnant want and this. not happen. Yeah, not yeah, not yeah, excited about this. So in January of 1970, her buddy Henry McCluskey comes through for her. He was actually an adoption lawyer and he had just met with a woman. She was pregnant with her third child. She was 22 years old, addicted to drugs and alcohol. Mm. She's poor. She was the victim of abuse. And her name was Norma McCorvey, though she is more widely known by her pseudonym, Jane Rowe. Right. Okay. So we're going to take a little detour again. And we're going to talk about Jane Rowe, AKA Norma McCorvey for just a sec. Okay. From everything that I can find out about Norma McCorvey, she was a deeply, deeply complicated figure. Yeah, I've um, read a little about her, I think. Yeah, she, you know, she like she had a very difficult life. Her father was like not really in her life at all. She spent a good chunk of her childhood in a Catholic boarding school, which she actually said were the happiest times of her life. Like she felt the safest. Uh, at this Catholic boarding school. Her mother was um, abusive. She would often beat McCorvey for being sexually promiscuous with men and women. She married in her teens and she gave birth to a daughter that, okay, the story about this first child is all over the place because you have Norma's story and you have Norma's mom's story and the two don't meet anywhere other than to be like, that baby was given up for adoption. Okay. Norma says that her mom tricked her into signing abortion papers. Her mom is like, no, I adoption didn't. papers. She wanted. What did I say? You said abortion, abortion papers. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Adoption <laughs> papers. Right. Just abortion papers, left and right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so Norma is, says that her mom tricked her into signing adoption papers. Her mom is like, no, I didn't. Like, she knew what she was doing. She gave that baby up for adoption. Blah blah blah. Right. Either way, it's like a fraught thing. Norma got pregnant got pregnant a second time. And that baby, that baby was also given up for adoption to another family. And so when she became pregnant the third time, she was like, I just want to have an abortion. Like, Mm -hmm. 
that's all I want. I just want to have an abortion. And she met with Henry McCluskey because like, that's what you did at the time. Right. She had to meet with an adoption lawyer. And she was like, I, again, she was like, I do not want to, I do not want to do adoption. I just want to have an abortion. So mm-hmm. McCluskey was like, okay, well, McCorvey doesn't want anything to do with the idea of adoption. So let me connect her with Linda Coffey. Coffey was the means by which Norma would, could proceed with a lawsuit and get her abortion. Just in case, if you're wondering why it was Jane Roe versus Jane Doe, it's because the courts had another Doe case on the dockets. Interesting. Okay. That's the only reason why. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. I've always kind of wondered that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to get to what I believe was the other Doe case in just a sec. Okay. So right before meeting with Norma Coffee had gotten a call from a fellow law school classmate of hers, a woman named Sarah Weddington. Weddington was working with a women's group in Austin on uh, how to fight the state's abortion laws. And she needed a lawyer who knew her stuff about federal courts and procedures. So she called Coffee up and was like, do you want in on this action? And Coffee was like, fuck yes, I do. Just to let you all know, I think it's like when you look at who Linda Coffey was, it makes sense that she was like fighting for abortion rights. If you look at Sarah Weddington, that is not so clear. She was middle class. She was married. She was a Methodist minister's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, the she, she was like a Texas woman. But the year before Sarah Weddington got married, she got pregnant. Mm. And Weddington had traveled to Mexico to get an abortion. Okay. And she didn't tell anybody but her, like her soon to be husband. So she actually, even though she didn't look the part, she was 100% like, no, we need to make sure that abortion is like safe and legal. Yeah. So that's what inspired her to take on Texas's abortion laws. So anyway, Weddington goes to coffee and is like, do you want to help me out on this? Coffee is like, fuck yes, absolutely. Let's work together. And like, by the by, would you be down to co-counsel with me? Should a suit ever be filed? Right. And Weddington was like, absolutely say no more, say no more fam. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So once McCorvey like kind of comes across their line of vision, Weddington and coffee get to work on McCorvey's case while also working on the does versus Wade case. Hmm. And this was the case. And I believe this is the case that was happening and why Roe is Roe and not Doe. So Doe's versus Wade, um, and it is plural, was the case of a married couple where the wife had a neurochemical disorder that basically was like, you cannot get pregnant. Mm, okay. And I think it was a type of thing that like, whatever this disorder was that she had, had she gotten pregnant, I think it was like you and the baby will absolutely positively 100% die. Like you wow. cannot get pregnant. Okay. She was married. So it's not like you could be like, well, you just won't, don't get to have sex then. Mm-hmm. And because it is known that there is no form of birth control that is 100% effective she was like i need to be able to have an abortion should should this happen should this happen yeah so that's the case that they were fighting i also want to pop in here and say that roe versus wade is not to my understanding about the explicit right to have an abortion Mm -hmm. rather it argues that the texas laws were unconstitutional violating the right to privacy found in the ninth amendment exactly that yeah exactly yeah okay so let's briefly talk about the ninth amendment (laughs) 
Okay. So the ninth amendment, in case you've ever wondered, and you don't like have, you know, the bill of rights memorized, (laughs) uh, the ninth amendment clearly and plainly states that the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Mm-hmm. If you need that to be translated, because I sure did, it means it addresses the rights retained by the people that are not specifically named in the Constitution because, listen, there's a lot of shit to talk about the Founding Fathers, but they did have some good ideas on stuff, and this was one of them. The Founding Fathers were concerned that future generations might argue that because a certain right wasn't listed in the Bill of Rights, it did not exist, which it's- is absolutely what has happened with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Right. I mean, it's the whole enumerated versus unenumerated rights thing. Right. right. Yes. For anybody who doesn't know enumerated just means clearly stated, specifically named. So when Coffey started writing the petition on behalf of Roe, she basically had to infer that the petition had grounds because the Constitution doesn't explicitly say anything about abortion. And the Supreme Court in 180 years of existence at the time had just like never gotten around to it yeah so she (laughs) she uses a 1965 case uh called griswold versus connecticut which Mm -hmm. overturned laws banning contraception on the grounds that the bans violated a constitutional right to marital privacy to provide the precedent she needed right and just to put it out there this is one of the cases that clarence thomas is now saying should be revisited right and the thing so uh, like part of this is, 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 you know, and this is, I know the thing that like makes anti-abortion people like so mad, but the thing is, is that like, you cannot tell another person what to do with their body. You right. like, you can't, you can't force people to be organ donors. You can't force people to donate right. blood. You can't. And everything about this argument hinges on the fact that they're like, but it is a person. Mm-hmm. Is it? Right. Is it? You know what I mean? And part of the whole thing is, I think the, um, sorry, the, yes, the episode of you're wrong about one of the things that they talk about is that the Supreme court, when they ruled on this case, they were sort of like, Oh, well, we're going to do with like trimesters and like viability and stuff, but that's also fucking unclear. And again, at the time that this case was argued, the medical advancements that had happened there, there have been medical advancements that now Mm -hmm. mean different things for the viability of a fetus. Right. It's just like moving target. It is. It's a moving. Well, and the whole, like, is it a person or not a person thing? Like it always, just what it comes down to me is it's an unanswerable question in terms of science or law because it's like that i mean you're getting into like questions of like when is a soul attached to a body that that's religious like that that's a theological question we can't answer it therefore in law i think you can only go with like what is empirical which is we know that the woman the the quote-unquote mother woman Mm -hmm. birthing person quote-unquote mother that is a person yes we can't answer the question about whether the fetus is a person so if you have to favor one over the other it's just obvious to me you favor the person carrying the child rather than the the fetus right and i mean this is one of those things that like again this is what they say it's about right it's always it's they're like this we're we're worried about all those sweet baby children but when you look at the fact that they're like but we also want everybody armed to the teeth with guns so that they can kill people because that's their right like the argument falls apart it's they can sit there and they can say that it's about the sweet baby angels as much as they want it's not at all about that there is there is a movement um i think it's called the whole life movement and it tends to be it's a quote-unquote progressive pro-life movement and i don't agree with it i'm put it out there i am 
100% pro-choice, but it, it is at least logically consistent where it's like pro-life from like birth It's pro-life whole life, yeah. It's like the social about, services, anti-death precisely. penalty, all of that stuff. At least right. there's like a logical through there. Well, and the thing is, is that I don't agree with it. I can respect that. Exactly. Because if you're going to say that it's about the sanctity of life, cool, then you buy into that from, from conception birth, from to birth death. From birth to death. Yeah, exactly. Yes. You or know what I mean? And, and yeah. yeah. And again, I don't agree with it, but I can respect that as a viewpoint. And like you said, these are also people that are like, they want, they want free healthcare. They want maternal and parental leave. They want, mm-hmm. you know, free education. <laughs> like right. they, they want our prison system to be about reformation rather than punishment. Precisely. All of, all of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is again, like something that I can it's, be like, yeah, I respect that. Aside from the the abortion question, it's like where I stand on almost all of those issues. You know, yes. it's just when you get yeah. to abortion is when it gets sticky. Right. So, okay. So coffee starts doing this work. So, and like I said, she, she uses the Griswold versus Connecticut case to provide precedent. She needed to clearly show where in the constitution, the right to privacy lay. So she argued that Texas's laws banning abortion violated the first, fourth, fifth, eighth, ninth, and 14th amendments. Wow. She also argued that the statutes were vague. They were constitutionally broad and infringed upon the fundamental right of all women to choose whether to bear children. Mm -hmm. That, that is, again, this goes into the thing of like, nobody can force you to be an organ donor, donate blood, be a bone marrow donor, yeah. donate your body to science. Like nobody can force you to do that. And I know that people get sticky about this because God bless the sweet baby children, but mm-hmm. up to a certain point, it's not a different person. It is of right. the childbearing person. So she like of, of this argument, coffee says, quote, you almost had to argue on the basis of common sense. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I feel you, Linda. Okay, so on March 3rd, 1970, Coffee took her work to the Dallas Federal District Courthouse. She paid $30 to have it filed, and then she, like, went about her life. In case you're wondering who the Wade is in Roe versus Wade, it stands for Henry Wade, the Dallas District Attorney at the time. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. In May of that year, so May of 1970, the hearing started, and while Weddington argued about privacy, precedent, personhood, it was Coffee who covered the more, quote, arcane procedural points of jurisdiction and standing. Okay. Um, yeah, that's like, that's why Weddington was like, I need somebody who like knows right this uh, and she was like absolutely i'm your yeah because that's like getting in the weeds yeah yeah and it is it's 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 digging into the constitution and being right. like this is what we're talking about here in june the texas supreme court ruled that the law was void but the three judge district court also ruled that the da could continue to enforce the same laws they just ruled were unconstitutional Right now on the surface, this is absolutely maddening Mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to give the district court of Texas any credit, (laughs) (laughs) but it did allow coffee, the ability to file an appeal directly to the Supreme court. Mm-hmm. Weeks later, the Supreme Court was like, yeah, let's hear what you've got. Now, yeah. Coffee's an excellent lawyer. She knows the law, but she really felt that Weddington should be the person to present the oral argument in the court. And mm-hmm. she felt this because Weddington was as comfortable in the spotlight as Coffee was out of it. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, this is a quote from the Vanity Fair article. It says, moreover, despite her brilliance, coffee would come across coffee, despite her brilliance, coffee could come across as bedraggled and optics <laughs> matter. Yeah, okay. Sure. She, you know, I mean, she's a queer woman in Texas in the 1970s. She's like trying to fight for women's rights and all this stuff. She can't. She like there was often talk about how it looked I like mean, she hadn't like combed her hair. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I like most days I can't be bothered <clears throat> to put on actual pants. So it's like right. I can't, you know, I mean, when you're that busy, sure. I'm yeah. not gonna fault you for not running a comb through your hair. Right, right. And Weddington was like, she was young, she was blonde, she had blue eyes, she, you know, she argued the case in like a suit and pearls and heels and, Mm -hmm. you know, she was like this lovely 26 year old. So coffee was like, no, 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 like you go, you go into it. Um, You're camera ready. Yes. And while Weddington delivered the oral argument, Coffee sat at the council table and just like listened. Coffee would have to wait three months for the ruling. She was actually driving in her car when the news came over the radio. Sarah Weddington was ID'd as the lawyer who submitted the class action suit that led to the ruling. Coffee wasn't even mentioned. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And after having done like a ton of work on a case that would affect the lives of millions of people, Linda Coffee kind of just like went back to her life. In case you're wondering, Sarah Weddington would go on to have an active career in politics and activism. I was going to say the name sounded familiar. Norma McCorvey never got the abortion that she wanted to have when she became Jane Roe. I was going to ask because it seems like that would take too long, like the whole process. Yeah, it did. She gave birth to a baby girl. Her story about how she became pregnant changed several times. Uh, I think um, I read that, yeah. Yeah, and she there were stories that she told because she thought it would basically like people would be like, "Oh, you were assaulted by like a gang of black men. That means that you can have an abortion." Like it mm-hmm. it again, she is a Didn't she ultimately like publicly I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Point. The biggest thing that you have to know about Norma McCorvey is that she is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. So, but she did give birth to a baby girl and she gave that baby up for adoption. Shelly Lynn Thornton is the name of McCorvey's third daughter. She Mm. grew up not knowing that she was the baby at the center of Roe versus Wade. Okay. So after Roe versus Wade, McCorvey became a vocal anti-abortion activist. Okay. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. She converted to evangelical Protestantism Mm -hmm. and she became an advocate, like a strong advocate for making abortion illegal. Mm -hmm. Uh, She talked about how she regretted her part in the Supreme Court decision. She claimed that she'd been a pawn of abortion activists and her lawyers. Mm -hmm. She became the poster child for the anti-abortion movement. McCorvey appeared in a documentary called AKA Jane Roe. um, And in the doc, she delivers what she referred to as her deathbed confession in which she claimed that her anti-abortion activism had all been an act She said that she was paid by anti-abortion groups to be the face of the movement and tax documents show that McCorvey received $450,000 during her years as an activist from anti-abortion groups. Yeah, I never, but I mean, that's like, what better poster child can you have though? I mean, it's like the, uh, the big anti-pornography poster child and like kind of the same time period was Linda Lovelace who had been the star of. Uh, precisely precisely deep, deep throat i think mm-hmm. one of those yeah but you know of course it's like you can get the per- person at the center of it and parade them up around and be like see 
thing right. that was wrong. Yeah. 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 There are people who worked with her who were part of like anti-abortion groups who were like, she was absolutely, she was absolutely paid for her work. She was absolutely a pawn. The only reason she held those beliefs is because we paid her to have them. And there's just as many people who were like, no, we never gave her any money. She did it yeah. of her own volition. So, so who knows? She ended her confession with this quote. I was the big fish. I think it was a mutual thing. I took their money and they'd put me out in front of cameras and tell me what to say. That's what I'd say. If a young woman wants to have an abortion, that's no skin off my ass. That's why they call it choice. Yeah. In 1989, McCorvey went on the Today Show stating that she wanted to meet her daughter. A journalist from the National Enquirer found Thornton and mm. that's how Thornton found out that she was the Roe baby. That's intense. Yes. How she feels about that. Well, according to Thornton, McCorvey told her over the phone that she should be grateful that McCorvey didn't have an abortion. And Thornton's reaction was, quote, what? I'm supposed to thank you for getting knocked up and giving me away. She said she would never, ever thank her mother for not aborting her. Reflecting, mm. quote, when someone's pregnant with a baby and they don't want that baby, that person develops knowing they're not wanted. Mm. End quote. Norma McCorvey died of heart failure in Katy, Texas on February 18th, 2017. She was 69 years old. Okay. Yeah. I think it was around that time. There were a bunch of articles about her. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm just going to wrap this up with Linda Coffee post row. She kept her eye on the case always. She, you know, she, a year at the year anniversary of the ruling, she told a reporter that the benefits of Roe weren't available to the poor. A few months after the ruling, she went to, is this is so weird. She went to Israel on a trip for Baptist singles. Mm, okay. Okay. What? Right. Um, but I mean, she. <clears throat> I was just going to say, I know that there's a whole evangelical like connection to Israel and like messianic, whatever. Yeah. yeah it's, just, it's strange. Yeah. <laughs> Um, she remained single though, you know, she didn't, she didn't find anybody to hook up with on that trip. But a year later, she answered a personal ad in the Dallas Observer from a woman seeking another woman of intelligence and modesty. And mm. my understanding is, is that they have been together since. Oh, nice. Even though Coffee stayed aware of Rose, she didn't, she, like, she didn't put it on her resume. Mm. Like she wasn't like, Hey, I did this shit. She only cared that abortion was legal and that women had access to it. She was right. not interested was, in... Wasn't for yeah. fame or glory or money. Or... No. In 1989, she was indicted on fraud charges for concealing documents and forging a signature. She was acquitted of all mm. charges. Um, she actually, it sounds like she actually, like she did not argue the case. She didn't represent herself, but she did like mm -hmm. a lot of the work for her lawyer. <laughs> yeah. um, she was acquitted of all the charges, but the ordeal left coffee um, humiliated and depressed. Mm. She withdrew further and further until she finally closed her firm in 2001. She eventually moved into a home, I think in East, I'm sorry, East I think it's East Texas with no air conditioning or heat getting wow. by on food stamps and social security. Mm. She was very proud of her legacy. Even if a lot of people don't know how important she was to the ruling, they of course went and interviewed her after the decision was overturned. And she says that the overturning of Roe versus Wade is bittersweet, though she remains adamant that we not give up hope. She says, quote, it just reminded me what it was like about 50 years ago when the late Sarah Weddington and I heard the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled in our favor. I followed all the ups and downs for so many years. There were times I thought it might be overruled. It was only today 
that I really felt it has been. She is the last surviving participant in the landmark Roe versus Wade case. And that is the story of Linda Coffey, Roe versus Wade's forgotten heroine. Wow. That, yeah, that's the, the it's a sad end of the story, obviously, for her life, but also for like what happened. I mean, you know, yeah, we're now yeah. living in. I mean, I guess like my I've been thinking, I mean, I'm, we've all been thinking about the implications of this. Hopefully, yes, we all have weeks. been. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my hope through it all, like, uh, obviously, there's nothing's going to happen. There's going to be a long fight. But my hope is like we have now lived for 50 years in a country where abortion was legal. Like we know what it's like to live in that country. And so we're going to know what we're missing. And I'm hoping that that is like the galvanizing thing that is going to push push our side forward because it needs to get out of like, you know, depending on a court decision and like, you know, get codified in law somehow. I'm not sure how that's yeah. going to look, but yeah. well, and I mean, I think, and I have absolutely had moments of this, you know, like in the, in the immediate aftermath of hearing politicians be like, this is awful. And you got to get out there and vote of being like, I already fucking voted for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, I did my job. But I think the thing that we have to think about this is progress of any form, whether it's political, financial health, whatever is like, you can't, you can't just be like, I ate healthy once. And now I feel like I should be in good shape. Right. That remains true for politics well, and the way that the world works. Like you have to continue to get out there and vote you. And in addition to that, you have to also do a bunch of other stuff. I mean, <clears throat> I think, you know, one thing that has happened, and this is what I, I'm hoping will change, is that you know we've had this now 50-year fight over abortion rights post-Roe. Mm-hmm. And we've had one side that has had a very organized, diligent, specific project to have one result. And you know their voters have been voting on this issue. It's been one of their main issues. On our side, it hasn't been a major voting issue because we had the, you know, we had the decision. We had Roe v. Wade. And I think we were maybe resting on our laurels a little bit. And like, hopefully that dynamic is now going to flip. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you and I have had conversations about this as well, is that it's very easy to get complacent in the United States because it is a young country Mm -hmm. of being like, well, this is how it is. And we don't have to worry about this now. But, you know, this is a great, this is a great, like, it's a great example of like, this isn't like one thing that you do one time and then you can be like, all right, I've done, I've done my best. Right. And and I should clarify. I was just going to say, especially as we, (laughs) especially as we like slide quickly towards Christofascism, the work is going to be long and difficult Mm -hmm. and activism is absolutely, absolutely necessary as is voting, you know? And I mean, I know, I know a lot of people were super grumpy about it, but Biden did come out and he was like, I need three seats, guys. I need three seats. That's the thing. in a democratic house yeah and and i should i should clarify when i say this hasn't been as big a deal on our side i mean there are people uh, on the pro-choice side who this has clearly been a big deal and they've been ringing the alarm bell about this for 100 decades but as a voting issue it's, it was you know if you looked at the list of priorities for democratic voters it was always pretty low because right. i think people were just assuming i don't think anyone really believed i mean i don't think i believed until amy coney barrett was confirmed that it would really happen yeah you know and but now we know you know so it's like you know take the legacy of you know people like uh was it linda coffee take the legacy of people like linda coffee and run with it i mean yeah and and yeah and you can't like don't don't sit there and just be mad at joe biden like Joe, joe biden can't wave a magic wand like people need to go out and vote they need to be like giving time 
resources, yes. money to yes. organizations that can make it happen. And you need to be prepared mm-hmm. for this is like, we're, we're gearing up for another, like probably decade plus long fight. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, you know, like I get it. I get the thing of, of wanting to place blame on stuff. And, you know, I, this, the, there is no one solution. You can't just be like, we'll go and vote. And you can't just be like, no. we're going to go protest. And you can't just be like, well, I'm gonna, like, you got to do the whole shebang. And it the, sucks. It's, it's all of the above. It, yeah. Right. It 100% sucks, guys. But, you know, like I, I had talked about this with Scotty a little bit just offline, but go and look and see about how other people are fighting for reproductive rights in other countries. Um, I will again give the example of Argentina. Mm-hmm. Argentina had mass, I mean, mass, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the street every Thursday for nine days years to fight Mm -hmm. for reproductive rights they didn't stop they didn't show up to one march with their clever sign and then we're like (laughs) yeah well it didn't happen they committed to nearly a decade of Mm -hmm. protesting and and if you've if you've never seen a latin american protest you you really should go look it up (laughs) yeah not what we're used to Right. Not at all, well, but it's going it, to, it's, it's going to take a concerted effort and some other issues may need to fall by the wayside for a little bit guys. And that needs mm-hmm. to be okay. We need to be able to like order things and put right. other battles aside for a moment. Yeah. Like everyone's you know? saying like this election is going to be <clears throat> about inflation and I don't know, it may be, I don't know how I'm not, I don't know how the midterm elections are going to go, but um, no idea. my hope is that this moves up from number seven on our list of priorities to like numbers one two and three you know right because the thing that is so scary about this is that it is clearly the first domino oh it's it's the canary in the coal mine i mean 100 percent. like obergefell griswold like all of these things are on the chopping block and we need to know yes Um, and the thing is is and and like beyond that like if you think that they're going to be like okay cool we got rid of abortion we got rid of birth control we got rid of gay sex um (laughs) um (laughs) You have to go into the nightmare scenario of like, when are they going to decide that they didn't talk about women voting in the constitution? When Mm -hmm. are they going to decide that, you know, you were allowed to own people when Mm -hmm. the constitution was written? Yeah. I mean, is that going to happen tomorrow? Probably not. But like, you know, we're, we're a few steps down the wrong path now. And also we can't rest on this idea that 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 you're hearing on the other side where it's like well it's just it's it's come back to the states which is where it belongs like listen to mike pence listen to people out, like they're not going to stop there their next step is they want a nationwide abortion ban. yes and the thing about this is is that nobody's going to be like oh okay cool well it's like totally illegal in kentucky and like you know 10 year old rape victims are having to have their rapists babies and like that's fine because you can still get an abortion in new mexico just the Mm -hmm. way that the nazis weren't happy to just have germany right it's not going to happen people who are like this are greedy greedy fucks and i don't Mm -hmm. say this to be like doom and gloom about it i say it to be like gird your loins it's you know it's a fight take a moment to think about what needs your focus immediately and choose wisely right and, and don't just be sad and be like, like, I think I, I, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't fault people for like posting their sadness and despair on social media about it. But like, that's not actually helping. Like, it's not like it, it can't be where you stop, you know? Right. And, and, yeah. and don't be, don't be like thinking a, like the people, like just what you're posting on social media is not 
like the sum total of what people are thinking or doing. Also, stop posting on social media and go like actually do something. Right. Like, you know, you know what I mean? One thing I've been trying to do, like, I don't have, like, I don't have much money, but I've been trying to where I can, I've been looking for organizations that are like focusing on reproductive rights for underserved communities like there was one and i'm forgetting what it was called i should have looked it up but there was one in west virginia that's like abortion rights for like you know appalachian communities and stuff yes you know there's for inner city communities and for you know communities along the rio grande valley and like you know don't just like write a check like nothing against planned parenthood but like you got to find the people who are on the ground doing specific work yes and planned parenthood has a lot of planned parenthood has a lot of money um Mm -hmm. and there's a couple of things that like if you're like well what do i do let me also say that there are for some people there are some people who the only activism that is accessible to them is posting on social media Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about you right now. Okay. Right. So like, this is again, where I'm like main character syndrome. Like I need you to understand that I'm not talking about you right now. <laughs> so relax, please. But you know, there was a lot of stuff of people being like, I like camping. And if you would like to come camping, don't do that. Go and look at the people who have already been doing this work. Go and look at the abortion networks and the abortion mm-hmm. funds. They are all over this country. You can literally Google your region of the country and abortion network and lots of stuff will come up about this. Uh, I know I have a couple of resources that I'll give Scotty to put in the show notes and do that. And, you know, like, don't sit there and be like Handmaid's Tale because also Handmaid's Tale is just a reimagining of what has happened to black and brown women in this country (laughs) since the beginning of this country, but reimagined as what if it happened to white women? So like stop showing up in your red cloaks and your fucking white hats and stuff like get out there and do the fucking work because this is on all of us. Uh, Do whatever, do whatever is in your hands to do. Yeah. Do whatever do like, but like look into what is actually within it instead of just being like, ugh, repost. Right. Um, like, do I think a little it's, bit of I think it's work. fine to do the repost. It's just don't don't stop there. Like, yeah. That, and also that's... just like the thing is, the thing for me is that I'm like, if you're like, I'm in a bubble, right? On social media. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of like, I don't have any like far right fucking <laughs> like <laughs> hardcore Christian people that are like following me. Mm-hmm. So me reposting stuff. If you know that pretty much everybody thinks like you and you're like, I'm going to repost this New York times article again, you know, maybe think if maybe there's something else that you might be able to do with your time and right. energy. Or if, and or if you're going to oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, sorry for all the stuff that I'm talking about, go and do something. My whole point in saying research abortion funds and networks in your area is because they all desperately need volunteers and mm-hmm. volunteers can be, you know, driving people to the clinic. It can be chaperoning people when they go in to have procedures. It can also be stuff like phone banking. It can also be stuff like data entry. Right. So if you're like, I don't want to, I'm scared about calling people and telling them, you know, that getting into arguments on the phone, there is a lot of work that can be done, but you need to go to the people that are doing it and take your cues from them. Right. And like, if you are going to do the re- like repost something on social media, maybe think about like, rather than just like a sad Handmaid's Tale meme, I've seen a lot of stuff that's like, you know, here's a list of organizations that need right. Like that's the right. stuff. That's the stuff I think that's the most helpful. Yeah. Know? I, <laughs> sorry guys. 
I'm not trying to yell at you. I am yeah. fired up about this. <laughs> I'm not trying to scold you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I am, I like, and I understand that I am scolding everybody a little bit, but part of this is it's, it's just because I don't want us to get complacent in our sadness right. about this. Like we need to gear up for a fight and it needs right. like, we need to gear up for an actual fight. And I am encouraged to see that there are a lot of politicians out there who are like, okay, we're done. We're done playing nice. Right. Like I fucking love well, that Gavin Newsom <laughs> took out a dad against right. DeSantis. Yeah. Like, so not your lane and was still like, gonna say it anyways. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all of you know, because it's, it's what they've been doing. They've been ginning up like the value of the reposting, even if you're in yes. a bubble is, is keeping emotions high, keeping people hot, making sure that even mm-hmm. people who are, within our bubble or not forgetting you know this is true so, this so is there is true. value there but it's just like don't stop it i mean i think the main point is don't stop it any one thing right like um did- whatever is within your grasp is, is something you should be trying and the first thing that is in everybody who is over 18 and not a felon's grasp is to go go yes so, yes like- yeah and uh yeah and i'm gonna say this this is how i feel about this I know that there are other people who feel differently and I think those people are wrong. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to state it like that. But there is, I know that like even Scotty wouldn't like you and I have talked about this, that you've been like, nobody needs my hot take. Here's the thing, guys, dudes, fellas, people without uteruses, we actually do need you to step up. And, and here's the thing is that what we need you to do is step up and be like, Hey, if I go out and I screw some person and they end up getting pregnant, I also want them to have the right to decide Mm -hmm. whether or not they can terminate that pregnancy. I don't want to hear any of your fucking Jordan Peterson hot takes. Yeah. If that's what what you're going to say is keep it to yourself. But any other dude who is like, yes, I believe in a person's right to choose. I believe in reproductive freedom. We need y'all's voices too. Here to clarify what I said (laughs) when we were talking about it, when I said no one needs my hot take is like, no one needs me getting on social media mansplaining abortion rights or my opinion on abortion rights. What, what I think I can do is like, if you're a dude or, or someone without a uterus on the side of the issue, like mm-hmm. just just stand up and be counted and like what i've been trying to do when i do share stuff is like here, here are some organizations that need help or like yeah. here's you know like if i am going to give my hot take i want my hot take as a man to be useful not just like me wanting trying to give brownie points for being like on the right side of the issue i think that that's where i come down on it i i don't want right. to like i don't want to try and come in and like i mean here i am on a podcast fucking talking about it but like everyone <laughs> listen to the podcast is come here to listen to us fucking talk about stuff so very true like i don't want to be like my voice is the one you should be listening to it's like i'd rather be trying to amplify other voices that are yes. are, are important to hear you know yes and i 100 percent understand and respect that and i do think because in the world that we live in currently your voice by benefit of you being a dude carries more weight than mine does that's true and, so I mean, that, that's- I, and that's the thing is that i think i you know yes don't go out there and like mansplain abortion mm-hmm. to people but i do think it's helpful for men to be like i believe in a person's right to choose Abs- i believe absolutely. in like, freedom that's why i say like stand up and be counted and yeah i mean i think it is important to put out there like if i scotty mild or knock up someone i 100 will be there <laughs> to help 
that person get whatever reproductive rights fulfilled that they feel they need you know like i i am here for that and like yeah i i 100 think all of us need to be stand up and be counted i just i think i want to be thoughtful about how i do it 100 percent, 100 percent. i just think that it's been and god you know what we'll just continue talking about this offline because yeah you still have a whole (laughs) fucking story to tell and it's like nine o'clock here (laughs) (laughs) no but i'm glad i'm glad we spent the time on it and like look guys i know you're not coming here for a political (laughs) podcast but you guys you guys know where we stand on things where we've never been shy about this stuff and this is like i think this is like gonna be like the issue of our time so And I think, you know, again, it's the thing that, again, I'm going to repeat myself again, and I will continue to repeat myself about this stuff. What I have found doing this podcast is mm-hmm. that a lot of stuff that we take for granted of being like, well, it's just always been this way. There's a whole untold story that most of us don't know because we've always right. just taken it for granted that it is the way that it is. Right. And a lot of times, more times than I'm comfortable with a shocking number of times, the things that has led to the quote unquote status quo is misogyny and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would hedge my bets that the majority of our listeners don't care for either of those things. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, sometimes yeah. we're going to talk about this shit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no apologies. No apologies. Um, Okay, should we move on? <laughs> yes, please. I was going to say my story is maybe, I can't say my story is lighter than yours, but, mm-hmm. it, but it is not as much involved with the hot button issue, but it is, uh, there's some real tragedy in my story. Also, I have to preface with a couple things. One, yes. my story is half of a story. And the reason why it's half of a story will become clear as I'm talking. Okay. The other thing I need to preface is I do, I'm starting with a cold open, but my cold open mm. needs a trigger warning. Okay. You know, I love a cold open. Yeah. Uh, but so. this is, this is not a fun cold open. Um, okay. and so we're, the, this cold open talks about violence and sexual assault. So okay. the reason I'm doing this story is that the anniversary is coming up. Um, okay. okay. So at around 2 a.m. on July 7th, 1993, a young woman left the Comet Tavern in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle. Uh, She had been staying in a basement studio space at an apartment building about a block away from this tavern. After she left the tavern, she visited her friend who lived up on the second floor of that building, and then she left, and she disappeared. Police think she may have left the building because she was trying to walk a few blocks north to another friend's apartment. Mm -hmm. At 3.30 a.m. that morning, uh, her body was found near the intersection of 24th Avenue and South Washington Street in Seattle's Central District. Police believed that she ran into her attacker at just after 2.15 a.m., so like within 15 minutes of her leaving this tavern. She'd been beaten, raped, and strangled. Uh, The medical examiner would later say that if she hadn't been strangled, the severity of the beating would have been fatal on its own. She had suffered blunt impact to her abdomen and a lacerated liver. Uh, No ID was found on her body in this delayed identification, but actually the medical examiner, this was in Seattle, early 90s. Medical examiner was a fan of the local music scene, specifically the grunge scene grunge punk mm-hmm. and she had actually been to concerts where she rec- where the medical examiner recognized the woman who was of course Mia Zapata 
who was the lead singer of the gets mm. uh, so this is the story of mia zapata the lead singer of the gets and how she was one of the women who built grunge uh mm. and the reason why this is half of a story is because of the way she died mm. okay so mia zapata she was born mia Catherine zapata on august 25th 1965 in chicago illinois i always thought that mia zapata was like a nom de plume like a stage mm. name but actually that mm. was her birth name uh, mm-hmm. Her last name was Zapata. And according to the, I watched a, Oh, by the way, my, my source is real quick. I don't have that many sources. My main source was a documentary called The Gets from 2005 is directed by Carrie O'Kane. Mm-hmm. Also Wikipedia, of course. And then an article from Longreads uh, called The Women Who Built Grunge. This is from this June. So this month uh, was written by oh, wow. Lisa Whittington Hill. And actually it was that Longreads <laughs> article that made me realize I should do Mia Zapata because the mm-hmm. anniversary of her death was coming up. So according to the documentary, actually the story is, and I'm not sure that this is confirmed, but this, she's actually a distant relative of the of Emiliano Zapata, who's of course the Mexican revolutionary. Yes. Um, she was born in Chicago. She was ended up being raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Her dad, and by the way, in the documentary, uh, they interview her father, and he just seems like such a lovely, supportive person who clearly just like adored his daughter as Ugh. punk rock and snarly as she was. But he said as a child, she was very quiet and very reserved. She did not like calling attention to herself. But then if you put a microphone in her hand, she would just like transform and become, in his words, magnetic. So she attended Antioch College in Ohio in the mid-1980s. And that's where she met a group of dudes, a guy named Matt Desner. He was a bassist, a guitarist named Andy Kessler, but he went by the name Joe Spleen. Um, and then a drummer named Steve Moriarty. And from what I understand, Andy and Steve, the guitarist and drummer, they'd already been playing together. They were like musically focused. And I think they were kind of the, the driving songwriters of the band. Um, mm-hmm. They recruited Matt Desner, the bassist. My understanding, I think a lot of this was like, you know, is, a lot of this is not super clear. But I think Matt Desner was like pretty new to playing music and they were actually kind of teaching him to play the bass. They're looking for a singer. Well, all right, I'm calling him Desner. It's Dresner, sorry. Um, They were looking for a singer. According to the documentary, uh, Matt Dresner was at a party where he watched drunken Mia get up onto a table and start singing Bessie Smith. And he was like, we need her in the band. Like, he was just like, she's she's amazing. And the thing about Mia, we'll get into it. I'm going to play a little bit of her music for you. I mean, she really was like the, the reincarnation of Janis Joplin. Like, mm. um, <clears throat> although she was born before Janice Joplin died, but she was like the new Janice Joplin. Yeah. Um. So they started calling themselves the Gits. They were originally the sniveling rat-faced Gits, which was a name taken from a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> um, uh, amazing. And uh, Andy Kessler, the guitarist, was like, he was like, um, yeah, we need to change this name. He says, I wanted to change the name of the fucking band, but the other three people would not have it. <laughs> so I think they eventually agreed to like shorten it and they became the Gets. And Steve Moriarty, the drummer, said, you know, they like the name the Gets because like a Get is a moron, a dork, a freak, a nerd. And basically, they were like, all band names are stupid. We wanted a stupid band name. It didn't mean anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like part of the whole punk rock thing, you know? It's like yeah. bands like The Slits, the you know, whatever, like... Right. So they started playing around Antioch. Uh, by the way, mentioned Steve Moriarty, the drummer, was actually dating a woman named Valerie Agnew. Let's put a pin in her because I'm going to talk about her a little bit uh, momentarily. Okay. Um, but they started playing around Antioch. This is in Ohio. And they immediately started building this big following. 
this was around this mid 80s i think they formed in 1986 so sort of like getting towards the end of the 80s they all decided it was like time to leave antioch like they didn't all graduate from college they were all in college at the time like some i think some of them graduated some of them didn't but they were like we're done we're done here we need to move on they did not want to go to the east coast in fact according to the documentary um kessler the guitarist said they wanted to get as far away from the east coast as possible Hmm. so they looked at the map and they were like let's go to seattle yeah that's about as far as you can go (laughs) yeah (laughs) and of course you know this is mid late 80s there's a growing music scene in seattle that i'm going to talk about here in a moment so this of course music scene was what we would come to be known as grunge running kind of concurrent to it was the riot girl movement i'm going to talk about both here in a second the band moved into an old house at the intersection of 19th and denny in seattle it was uh, like an old it uh, sounds like pretty rundown house they called it the rat house it was supposedly God, i can i can see it you I know can, what i, I mean? can smell it like... yeah yeah you know everybody's got beige sheets but nobody ever bought beige sheets <laughs> like they were they were some other color when they were purchased but like right. nobody does laundry yeah it's that type of <clears throat> and i think that i mean it's the entire band is living there yeah. um, like <laughs> and we're talking like a punk rock like party band like they were all fucking God. drinking and like ugh, ugh. Um, people were supposedly... waking up with like cigarettes in their mouths and stuff mm-hmm. like just ugh there's a lot of footage of them like either rehearsing or even like playing like they would do these like underground shows at the rat house where they Uh bring people in and there's a lot of footage in the documentary it's like old vhs footage and it's like yeah it's that kind of place you can tell yeah in fact it was owned it was quote owned by a warlock the guy who owned the house claimed he was a warlock he had freaked the neighbors out so much that they had spray painted uh, a white cross on the front lawn um and the supposed warlock landlord had i guess the house was in fact infested with cockroaches so he told he he told the band members that the way he dealt with the cockroach problem is he gathered a bunch of cockroaches together and made them into a stew and ate them and that supposedly got rid of the cockroaches so that's the type of place we're we're talking about i am i'm gonna screen grab your face right there (laughs) that was amazing (laughs) <laughs> I did not expect cockroach stew to be on the mm-hmm. docket for tonight. It's yeah. just listen, it's just so disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it's uh but that I mean that's that's the type of place that was in. And they were talking in the documentary like the Steve Moriarty the drummer goes back to visit the house mm-hmm. and he's like and he's like I think all this a lot of these areas have been kind of gentrified now so he was like well that portion the driveway that wasn't there. <laughs> he was like <laughs> he was like it used to be this old beat up van he said the brakes went out one day on the van and they got up in the morning and it had rolled down the street and crashed my god um, so it's like yeah we're not we're not talking like arena rock here <laughs> like this no is- it makes it makes me think there was uh when i was in college there was a house that i believe was like a five bedroom house mm-hmm. and it was simply known as the Lindsay street house mm-hmm. and inevitably five guys would move in there they always threw the best parties mm-hmm. but it was always it was the type of thing where you were like you had to bring your own cup you know what i mean mm-hmm. to the party 
or just drink out of the bottle of whatever you were drinking that night because like there was nothing like there was like you know there were piles of old pizza boxes Mm -hmm. in the corners and just I mean I feel like everyone's college experience like there is that house like when I was in grad school in Boston my friends lived in a house and I can't remember the street it was on but it was like the street number was 72 something so we called it the 70 deuce yeah and that was like (laughs) our party house you know (laughs) yeah luckily like a bunch of girls live there who weren't a bunch of gross dudes so I think they kind of kept it from becoming totally disgusting but oh, like god yeah I mean we we all know we all know that place well this place is yeah. called the rat house and like, oh disgusting okay I think it was exactly what you think it was right um so Ugh. Mia was the first to get like a proper job she became a waitress at this dive bar restaurant that was kind of down by the waterfront it was called the frontier just like we have in Albuquerque it was known as like the toughest dive bar <gasps> in the area uh-huh she was a waitress for four bucks an hour. Wow. Meantime, they were trying and trying and trying to get a show. Like they had moved to Seattle. You know, they had been like the fucking thing in Antioch. Yeah. You know, but, you know, being the talk about being a big fish in a small pot. You know, and Antioch, I'm sorry, Ohio. where is, where is, okay. That's what that was my question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, and if you know anything, I don't know that much about Antioch and I forgot to look up where, I think it's central Ohio. I'm not sure, but like, I'll it's like a big liberal right arts college town yeah Mm -hmm. but they were like the big thing in antioch but like that is i think the literal definition of being a big fish in a small pond and so here they are in seattle no one gives a fuck about them right so they're trying and trying and trying to like get a show and they're going to this place that was called the vogue it was like one of the big music venues and they were trying to get in they're bribing the doorman all this stuff they finally got a show and that was like their foot in the door to the seattle music scene did you look it up yeah but i'm trying to what are you doing there <laughs> we go oh shit no that's where i am can you show <laughs> me where okay yeah i mean it it looks like it's like very close to the border of west virginia yeah that makes sense yeah, yeah. i know it's i know it's kind of a small town it's like a small college town basically yeah yeah it seems it's like kind of in between columbus and pittsburgh okay it's yeah, like if like columbus is here pittsburgh is here antioch's like here yeah that kind of makes sense Whoa. but yeah but okay. now here they are in seattle which has its own pre-existing music scene that's right. growing its own bands everything and the gets they're they're the new kids in town and they're trying to get in they finally managed to get in and get a show at the vogue and this was like their foot in the door in the seattle music scene so let's take a moment and talk about music in the Pacific Northwest at this time, late 80s, let's early 90s. This is, of course, the height of grunge. Now, I should mention that the get, and they make it clear in the documentary, they did not see themselves as part of like grunge. Okay. Like they, they were a punk band. They saw themselves as a punk band. But it's interesting when you listen to them, they have some of the features of grunge and they became uh, a pretty big deal within the like what we would now consider the grunge scene. The thing is, grunge was never a single unified music scene. Right. Like it wasn't like a bunch of bands got together around 1986 and were like, we're going to create a new type of music called grunge. It was right. Like, and here are like the tenants of the musical styles. Like, right, right. It was this organic thing that grew out of a lot of different scenes, actually. So, yeah. like, some quote unquote grunge bands were really had their roots in like punk rock. And that would be the Gets, Nirvana, you know, mm. bands like that. You know, a band like Pearl Jam kind of grew out of somewhat out of punk rock, but also had a lot of classic rock. You had bands yeah. like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, really came out of heavy metal. 
in other cities, like these would have been very discreet scenes that would have never overlapped. Yeah. Like if you're talking about like the big centers of rock music through the 80s, you had New York hardcore, like hard, uh. you know, New York was like a hotbed of like hardcore punk. Same with like Bay Area hardcore, like in, in mm-hmm. California, LA, you had Orange County punk, but then the LA rock scene was very like glam metal. It was, you know, it was the Sunset it was Motley Crew, and- Motley Crew, and all that. Seattle was a much more insular, isolated thing, and there was all these smaller scenes, and there was a lot more just mixing. It sounds like so you were like part of the metal scene, but you're going to the punk shows, you know, like and vice versa. <clears throat> so they all started kind of borrowing from each other a little bit. And over time, it started creating a little bit more of a unified, if not sound, like a unified kind of ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, so the term grunge was first used by a guy named Bruce Pavitt. Rock fans would know his name. He was one of the founders of Sub Pop Records. Sub Pop, of course, being the big indie record label that kind of like was associated with grunge and alt rock alternative rock in this time period like sub pop was where nirvana first started things like that in the sub pop catalog he was describing an ep by the band green river 1987's ep dry as a bone and green river by the way was like pearl jam before pearl jam okay it was like green river was a band kind of fell apart some of the guys from green river came together formed mother love bone the lead singer of mother love bone died of heroin that was andy wood they then came together and formed pro jam so green river was like proto pro jam but their 1987 ep dry as a bone was described in the sub pop catalog as quote gritty vocals roaring martial amps ultra loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation so this was like where the term was first kind of like thrown Destroyed in there. Destroyed the morals yeah. of a generation. And that's funny. If you go back and listen to Green River, they're just like standard kind of sludgy punk. Like they, <laughs> they weren't destroying anybody's morals, but you know, it's good. It's, it's good. Marketing. It's good advertising. It's good advertising. 100%. Yeah. And I just love the idea that the guys in Pearl Jam, you know, the guys who did like black and like super earnest, you know, started off in a band that destroyed the morals of a generation. <laughs> not not the way i would typically describe pearl jam but (laughs) no but yeah the term grunge kind of became this catch-all descriptor like people sort of grabbed onto it and then started applying it to all these different bands it's very important to notice that i'm not sure there's a single grunge band particularly from this area in this time period who would have called themselves grunge in Mm. fact most of them later on were like what the fuck is grunge like grunge is like that's not even a thing it was a marketing label like they really pushed against it but it was kind of what they all kind of got grouped under this label right um this is of course getting towards the end of the 80s like hair metals kind of like people are getting kind of sick of it people are getting kind of sick of like arena rock you know it's like the end of like reagan yuppie 80s and you know conspicuous consumption going into the 90s which just has this different vibe yeah i think like if i think about grunge music like i think Mm -hmm. of all of the bands that you've talked about which don't really sound the same but it was just like It was like moodier. It was like, it was sadder. As weird as that sounds, like even though, you know, you might listen to something like Nirvana and be like sad, but it was was sad. It wasn't, it was this like, it was a turn away from like the party anthems Mm -hmm. that we'd been hearing to like stuff that was really like, I'm sad because like the world is kind of (laughs) terrible. I mean, and they talk about, they say like, what was the unifying factor? And like, so a guy named Jonathan Poneman, who was also, uh, 
I think one of the founders of Sub Pop, he said Seattle was a perfect example of a secondary city with an active music scene that was completely ignored by an American media fixated on Los Angeles and New York City. And then Mark Arm, who's the lead singer of Mud Honey, he said this one corner of the map was being really inbred and ripping off each other's ideas. Which is one way to put it. But basically, mm-hmm. but you're right. It was like this grunge ethos, the unifying links were a real rejection of this like corporate mainstream rock culture the motley crew mm-hmm. you know a real rejection of the like well, i'm gonna i'm gonna qualify the statement of like the rank misogyny and everything mm. um, now that's a complicated mm. statement i'm gonna get to that here in a second Mm-hmm. It was very much rooted in this like t-shirt and jeans, the whole flannel shirt cliche. Right. No one's out there wearing leathers with leather jackets with teased hair and you know makeup yeah. and all that stuff. Like it was like we're going out there in our, like unlaced up Converse sneakers and like if you remember Nirvana's uh, MTV Unplugged performance, he's just wearing this like ratty cardigan sweater. You know? Yes, yes. Like, you know, it was like unwashed hair. Like you said, it was yeah, moodier. Was... There was a dourness to it. Yeah, and it was very clearly a reaction to glam very clearly and i mean it's for our younger listeners we've talked about this before i'm not sure if you were like born in the 90s like post this era if you would really understand the earthquake that nirvana was in terms of nationwide pop culture because it was like overnight we went from you know the nelson twins and poison and motley crew the nelson twins remember like poor guys oh they came just god. a little too late <laughs> oh god i just remember their gorgeous blonde locks <laughs> yes yeah, yeah nelson yes. i mean i i've always felt a little bad for them because it was just like man you guys were like two years too late to really yeah just a, a bit yeah they kind of hit yeah. right as like grunge was about to hit but it was just like that was over it was like over it felt like if you're in new mexico i'm sure if you're in these areas where these things are kind of growing naturally felt different but if you're in like new mexico it was like Mm -hmm. one day people were listening to motley crew and def leppard yes and the next day it was like no nirvana pearl jam yeah it was this like sad um kind of like almost scary Mm -hmm. like it was i remember seeing um the video for smells like teen spirit and i was like these guys are going through it (laughs) like (laughs) this is not a song about like getting girls and partying all night long I just remember, like, like, just a few years earlier, I mean, I think I talked about it on here when we were telling our ghost stories and I was over mm-hmm. at my neighbor's house watching MTV and I watched the Put the X in Sex video or whatever. <laughs> yes. like, which is, the, it's like a parody of 80s yes. glam. I mean, at one point, I believe Paul Stanley is like air guitaring a girl's leg. Like she's standing next to him and kicks her leg up and he's like playing guitar. He's like, like, yes. Yeah. And this is like the video vixen. This is Tawny Katan on the fucking car rolling around. This is. Yes. It was that to like just a couple years later. The one I remember was Pearl Jam's Jeremy video. 
Oh my God. It was yeah. Yeah, and then and then a couple years after that is when you start getting into like nine inch nails and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, and it was it was dark and it was like tormented, but like, yeah, yeah, it was it was just what is and this and where is it coming from? And like, why are so they inter- so sad? And it's so interesting because the '90s is like such a weird time period because it was like we had just won the Cold War. Mm-hmm. You know, the Soviet Union was gone, so I think like america as a culture we felt like we kind of lost our purpose a little bit Mm -hmm. so there was something adrift about american culture in the 90s -hmm. but also like there was a complacency and at the beginning of the 90s was like a pretty big recession yeah it's like it was a really weird time yeah and it was it was it was the first time that I remember, I'm not saying that it was the first time that it happened, but it was the first time that I remembered hearing music that was not sort of idolizing this perfect lifestyle. It was, it Which felt to me like is very eighties. Yes. And, but I mean, even, yeah. But even like, you know, you're talking about like the beach boys and they're like, I want to like go mm-hmm. surfing and like hug you all night and like, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And it felt like it was this music that I keep, I know I keep saying this, but it felt like it was the first time that I heard music that was like, I'm sad and I don't know why. Yeah. I just, yeah, exactly. It was like, I'm looking at the world and I'm sad because, you know, there were things like punk rock existed in the eighties, but it was very specific. And it was like a very specific anger tended to be very overtly political yes, or just overtly rebellious. You had like angry metal from the eighties, but it was all like, thr- like, and I talked about it on the choose Dolly episode, like thrash metal, which was all like very dungeons and dragons in terms of the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't like talking about like real things. No. I should also point out, like, we're talking about grunge <laughs> and punk. These are like white rock and roll based genres. And Very I when I say so. white, I'm like, obviously not everyone in these scenes was white, but like it, it, it was the stereotype. But this was also happening in like the hip hop world. Because yeah. you know, if you look at like rap in the mid-80s, it was run DMC, which was kind of party rap. This time period was like gangster rap. You know, this is like the time period of like the LA riots and stuff. So like, yeah. So it was, it was happening everywhere. Yeah. Um, And I think that's the thing is that it felt, it felt like it was a response and and a reaction to a lot of stuff. Very, like very much so. Yeah. The genres that had come before it, the world that these musicians were currently living in, you know, if you know any Gen X people who get like huffy about Gen Zers being like, Oh, (laughs) we like invented mental health. Um, (laughs) This is why. Come on guys. (laughs) It's because it's because there was this stuff of people, you know, it, it was, I mean, Jeremy's about a kid who goes and like shoots, shoots at the school. Well, right? no, he sh- I, it's about a kid who shoots himself in front of the class. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. But, you know, it was dealing with this. It was this stuff that was like. Well, this is, this I just, is the era where like, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this in a minute because this is where things get a little complicated, but where Eddie Vedder, you know, during their unplugging wrote pro-choice on his arm. Yeah. Um, people I mean, were this, talking about free tibet yeah like. it's like motley crew would not have done that, you know it was very much a different 
a different thing happening. Yeah. And so when you talk about like, where did this come from? Why Seattle? Well, Seattle was going through like a big economic depression. A lot of these grunge musicians really were coming out of these like working class. A lot of them were coming from like working class towns and suburbs and stuff around Seattle or parts of Washington. Like famously, Nirvana is not actually, or Kurt Cobain's not from Seattle. He's from Olympia, Washington, mm-hmm. which was, I think, like a logging town you know so it's like it's rainy you never see the sun and unfortunately like drug use was rampant yeah yeah it wasn't like party drug i mean it may have started that way but it was like i mean we all know the story of kurt cobain i just read earlier this year you know my my favorite quote-unquote grunge band is uh the band screaming trees Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, if you guys know a song of the Screaming Trees, it would probably be Nearly Lost You, which is on the single soundtrack. Did you hear the distant cry calling me back to myself? Uh, but I just read, he, he just died earlier this year. Mark Lanigan had been the lead singer of Screaming Trees. Mm-hmm. I just read his autobiography and it is like, oh man, that dude went on a fucking journey. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this, it was not a fun party. Like, here's all the fun I had in my band. It was yeah. like, they hated each other from the start. Like <laughs> fully half of the book is just his horrible drug stories. Like, Oof. you know, I mean, this, this was the world, these guys were coming from and somehow they just hit a fucking nerve you know yeah. in pop culture yeah. meanwhile where grunge started to kind of come together is like a thought like people started like if you were to look back and pick like a moment where it sort of solidified into a thing was in 1986 a record label based in seattle called cz records put out what is now infamous uh compilation cd called deep six and it featured all these seattle and pacific northwest bands including the band green river including the band melvin's which is one of my favorites uh soundgarden band malfunction which is where the lead singer andy wood uh would later go on to join mother love bone which of course like i said mother love bone became pearl jam right you know so if you were to like point to a moment where it all kind of like started to coalesce into like a thing it was this deep sex compilation it was not like a major commercial success but it became kind of like a focusing point and these were like the big bands of the time and then around the country you had all these other what i guess you would call post-punk bands it kind of grew out of punk rock but you know, we're sort of trying new things that also kind of informed what grunge became. So you had like out of DC, you had the band Fugazi, mm-hmm. which uh, grew out of the band Minor Threat, which was a DC hardcore band. You had the Pixies, you had Afghan Wigs, um, who are from Ohio. Pavement was also from Ohio. You had Dinosaur Jr. from Massachusetts. These weren't exactly grunge bands, but they're all kind of, it was like part of the same stew you know mm-hmm. and the, and then of course in the early 90s it just fucking exploded because nirvana put out the nevermind album soundgarden had already i think put out bad motorfinger uh, mm-hmm. pearl jam put out 10 this was all like 1991 and all of a sudden this is the moment we were talking about where like everyone put their bullet belts and like hairspray away and put on their flannel shirts you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah meanwhile there was a parallel scene and the reason I'm talking about, because the band that gets in Mia Zapata, she's seen as like central to both of these scenes. Mm, um, okay. So just down the road from Seattle in Olympia, Washington, you had the Riot Girl, 
see. Right. Uh, right, girl? So the very reductionist way to talk about this is uh-huh. that grunge was the boy scene, uh-huh. right girl was the girl scene. Uh-huh. I think you can guess that this is bullshit. <laughs> right. These were crossover scenes. The bands were listening to each other. There were definitely women in grunge, Mia Zapata being one of them. In fact, uh, there's a woman named Tina Bell, who's considered like the godmother of grunge. Uh-huh. She was a black woman who fronted Yes, a, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she fronted a band called Bam Bam. And I'm yep. going to drop in just a little bit of Bam Bam. Like, You know, Bam Bam never was like a big commercial hit. I believe Tina Bell kind of went away from performing music, but a lot of people point back to Bam Bam as being like, this was one of the bands that defined the scene, the sound that became the Seattle thing. But there were some distinctions between grunge and Riot Girl, And one of which was like Riot Girl bands, you have bands like Seven Year Bitch, you have Bikini Kill, you have Bratmobile. I think those are kind of considered the big three. You also have a band like L7, who's like, they're sort of alternately like, are they a punk band? Are they a metal band? Are they a Riot girl band? Are they a grunge band? Like I've seen right. them on lists for all of them. You have bands like Babes in Toyland, who I think yes. are generally considered more grunge, but they had some crossover. The thing about Riot Girl, particularly like a band like Seven Year Bitch or Bikini Kill, is that they were much more explicitly political okay. and explicitly feminist. Okay. Generally, f- at least fronted by women, if not the entire band being women. So like Babes in Toyland were all women. I believe Seven who, Year Bitch was as well. Who pulled their tampon out and flung it? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Hold, hold on. Hold that thought. Hold on. Hold that thought. But yeah, so it's like, if you were to be super reductionist about it, you would say like, right, girls was where the girls were. Grunge was where the boys were. But they were kind right. of, like I said, there was a lot of crossover. In fact, remember I mentioned the drummer, Steve Moriarty, his girlfriend, Valerie Agnew, who moved out to Seattle with him, became one of the founding members of Seven Year Bitch. Okay. Um, and they actually formed in the rat house. They were playing in the rat house. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So I just, I think you got to be like very, you got to be very careful when you're talking about these as being discrete scenes because they really were. And one thing you do to got to give credit to like a number of the dudes in the quote grunge scene is mm-hmm. that they were like amplifying the Riot girl bands. They were, they were like Kurt Cobain was out there being like pumping these bands. You know, he, cool. he was, he was a big fan of a lot of, I mean, I think, to me, the two people who really met men, males in grunge, who really kind of walked the walk in terms of like really trying to discard the misogyny of rock mm-hmm. music of the past, Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder, they, they, they were kind of the real deal. I think. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you did have a lot of like bullshit gatekeeping and stuff happening in grunge yeah, of too. Course. And a lot of it was happening in the press. And so what happened to Riot mm-hmm. Girl was that the press never took it seriously. You know, the Riot Girl bands were not selling out to the level that like the big four grunge bands, you know, the big four being Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and uh, Alice in Chains. 
Right. There was not a riot girl band that even came close. I mean, the closest you could say was Hole. Yeah. But they weren't really riot girl. Like, I don't think Courtney Love was really ever part of that scene. In fact, I think she was kind of looked down on within that scene. Mm. But the press just never took it seriously. They were like trying to set up these fake rivalries between the bands. Mm. So, like, they tried to set up a rivalry between L7 and Babes in Toyland because it's like, you can't just like celebrate women. You have to like try to tear them. Down. No, there's yeah, they've got to be trying to claw each other's eyes out. <clears throat> right. So like L7 and L7, by the way, is one of my like my memory. Well, I'll get to it. Um, let me just talk a little bit about L7. They released an album called Smell the Magic on Sub Pop in 1990. And they were considered one of the bigger, I guess you would call them Riot Girl. And again, like these are all labels that were applied by people outside, outside of these yeah. things, you know. I think Riot Girl was a little more cohesive. Like there was more of a like manifesto ethos to it. Uh-huh. Um, but even then there were a lot of bands who were like lumped in. They were like, that wasn't us. We, we were just doing our thing, you know. Right. But they put out an album called Smell the Magic in 1990. They became one of the bigger bands associated with Riot Girl. And then they were finally given their own spin cover in 1993. But the headline next to the band's photo said, More than Babes and Boyland. Boo. Boo. <laughs> and this was again is obviously a play on the name of the band Babes in Toyland. And it was part of this manufactured rivalry between L7 and Babes in Toyland. And I read this article, it was from the Long Reads article, uh, the Women of Grunge article, where I I believe it was, I think it was people from both bands were like, this is never a thing. Like we were fans of each other. We weren't we weren't rivals, you know? Right. But of course, L7 became the most famous for an incident in 1992 <laughs> when lead singer Danita Spark. <laughs> confronted hecklers in the audience at the Reading Festival by taking out her used tampon, saying, eat my tampon, and then throwing it into the audience. Which is fucking punk rock as it's fuck. so punk rock. And you know that those dudes were probably like, you know, heckling a bunch of shit. And then she threw a tampon at them and they were like, yeah. and they like, they like went home and cried into their little beige sheets. They were like, no, right. gross. gross. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm a big giant vagina. Um <laughs> yeah unfortunately i feel like that's a tactic that more women should use because guys are so grossed out by menstruation mm-hmm. that i feel like we should really harness well, uh, the power of a used tampon unfortunately i'm not sure it worked out that well for l7 though because oh, that's too bad. It, it became like the thing they were known for yeah and then it became a joke and like that's the i, I re- i'm gonna post a link to it i really i didn't write down a lot of the quotes because like i i, I want to get back to the gets and Mia Zapata. Mm-hmm. But like if you read this article, it just the way the press 
minimized the contribution yeah. of women. And right. I think this goes all the way to Courtney Love. Like I always have felt like Courtney Love gets a bit of a bad rap. Unfortunately, she makes it easy on people <laughs> with like her behavior, you know. But you know, there's all these people really want to treat her as like the carpetbagger. She wrote Kurt Cobain's coattails. Right. She was doing music before Kurt Cobain. She had right. been in bands before. She she was a presence before Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Holes Live Through This album is a fucking banger. Like it's a great fucking album. She was she was a great front one. But of course, she's only spoken of as the wife of Kurt Cobain. Like her own contributions to music have been, I mean, she's treated as like a tabloid caricature. Yeah. There's the whole fucking, I, I don't want to go too deep into it. There's the whole conspiracy theory, of course, that she was, right. she had murdered Kurt Cobain. There's, there's an entire documentary about it. That's I right. used to, I think when I was younger, I used to, because of like being into conspiracy theories, I was sort of like got a kick out of that conspiracy theory. But I mean, like everything on this podcast, when we talk about these things, do some reading and it, that story debunks itself. Yeah. Courtney Love, she's a very complicated problematic person for a lot of reasons but i think she deserves more credit than she gets um, i think i think courtney love she's a perfect example of behavior that would be revered in a man being like reviled in a woman you know what i mean like she's she people think that she's a pain in the ass because she's like acknowledge me Right. Acknowledge like what I have done and who I am and my contributions and everything that I am outside of being the wife of Kurt Cobain, like acknowledge, see me. Right. And people are like, ugh. No, but so many of the stories you read about her is like, <laughs> oh, she was dating uh, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. And then she was with Trent Reznor from, I mean, it's like, that's what people talk about. People don't right. talk about the fact that Live Through This is a fucking excellent album. Right. Um, and, I mean, and like, and to go along with that, nobody's being like, well, yes. And those guys also all day, like they, like they, again, they were all, it's an insular thing. I don't read, like, I love Mark Lanigan, but read his, his autobiography. It's called Sing Backwards and Weep. The dude was a fucking mess. Like Courtney Love had nothing on him. In fact, he gives her a lot of credit for saving his mm. life and I think helping him out of his addiction. She, I think Kurt, Courtney Love kind of paid for Mark Lanigan to go to rehab. Like, wow. So she's not the, fu- I'm, I'm like, again, this is about me as a pad and not Courtney Love, but right. she's not the <laughs> villain that everyone has painted her to be, you know? Right. And yeah, her behavior, I mean, as much as, you know, like I said, Kurt Cobain kind of walked the walk on like some of the feminist stuff. The dude was also a fucking mess. Like none of these, none of these people were behaving well you know except for maybe some of the riot girl bands who i think had their shit together a little bit more yeah like all of these i mean there's a reason why eddie vetter is kind of the last man standing of the big four like that's true you know i mean these were people who had problems courtney loved no more less than anyone else right so i just i I do want to just say like she deserves more credit than she gets yeah but a big influence on courtney loves of course was mia zapata fantastic get back let's bring it back and like i gotta be honest i don't have that much on her like i had a hard time finding a lot on her that's because she didn't have much time on this earth you know yeah yeah but the gets became you know they they had their show at the vogue and then they they became one of the big unheralded on a national stage but within seattle they were like the band to see 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Rat House, which was where they lived. It's where they had their rehearsal space. They had these underground shows there all the time. And this is where a lot of bands kind of came together because they would actually use their rehearsal space. So you have bands like DC Beggars and DOA, like formed at the Rat House. And one of the bands that formed at the Rat House was, of course, Seven Year Bitch, which was the band of Valerie Agnew, who was uh, Steve Moriarty's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And Seven Year Bitch is a fucking, like, they're an amazing band. You know, they were like, if you're talking riot girl bands, like the ones that everyone sort of puts on the pedestal, it's Seven Year Bitch Mm. and it's probably Bikini Kill, like those two. Mm -hmm. And of the two, I would say I prefer Seven Year Bitch. Not as big a fan of them as I am probably of L7, but they're up there. Mm -hmm. Well, they like weren't even really musicians, but they were watching the gets and specifically they were watching Mia perform. And they were like, we want to do this. And so they were actually, they formed, they, they were borrowing the equipment of the gets to rehearse in their space. Steve Moriarty taught Valerie. Valerie was the drummer of Seven Year Bitch. He taught her how to play drums. And then they just started practicing and they formed themselves into a really great band on that just stands on their own. But they were looking specifically at me and Zapata saying like, we want to do what she's doing. And she was a huge support to them she was not protecting her turf or anything she was like going down there she was listening to them rehearse she was giving them pointers she was giving them encouragement you know so like i mean if you watch the documentary on the gets like you know celine v hill uh and valerie agnew are interviewed they're both from seven year bitch they give her no end of credit they were like Mm -hmm. they they clearly hero worshipped mia zapata yeah of course people jump to conclusions and thought that Mia and Andy, the guitarist, were a couple. And I've seen this on Reddit things where people are like, Mia Zapata and her boyfriend, Andy Kessler. They, ne- they were never a couple. They were never lovers. Mm. They never dated. In the documentary, Andy refers to her as his soulmate. He says, creatively, musically, she was my soulmate. Yeah. Okay, I want to play just a little bit of the okay. gets for you so you know okay. what I'm talking about. And just really pay attention to her voice. All right, so this song is called Guilt Within Your Head. This is from their album Enter the Conquering Chicken, which I think comes <laughs> from, like, in the documentary, they were described, like, I think the joke was that Mia Zapata looked like a chicken and she had these, like, skinny chicken legs and stuff. So she kind of, like, took that on herself. So the album is called Enter the Conquering Chicken. It was released Fantastic. after her death. After her death, it came out in 1994. And the song is called Guilt Within Your Head. So there's uh, Mia Zapata. What'd you think? I know it's not really your type of music. Right. No, but I was, it was interesting because, you know, a lot of times with, with this music can just kind of be like vocally, it can just be a little screamy, Mm -hmm. but she had some interesting like use and control of her voice vocally. Mm Yeah. And that's what people talk about her is like, so Mia Zapata, you know, she's in this punk band, but like her dad talks about it in the documentary. She was into the blues. Like, and like even the story of how uh, Matt Dresder saw her at the party, she was on the table singing Bessie Smith songs, you know? And I think you can just really hear it in her 
vocalizations and she did there was a rawness to her voice i think you hear i feel like i'm not sure what the connection between the two is but i just feel like there is no courtney love without mia zapata yeah i can see that yeah um but you know she's got this raw rough voice but there's so much soul in it and like you said control to it and that's where like you hear the janis joplin comparison with her yeah a lot. <clears throat> yeah. Like, a lot of people are like she was the Janice Joplin of like Seattle of punk rock, mm. you know. So the Gits were an interesting band and in that they like I said they never called themselves grunge, but they were kind of revered by like all of the movements, you know, like mm-hmm. They were very much a punk band. So like the Seattle punk scene really gravitated towards them, but they became like held up as like uh, a big influence on grunge. I think they were a big influence on Nirvana. I know Kurt Cobain was like a huge fan of the Gits. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's had statements where they were, he was like the Gits and the Melvins were like, they were his favorite bands of the scene. Right. Um, but they were also like instrumental in the development of Riot Girl. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that like seven year bitch, were kind of their protégés in a way, you know, yeah. is, is not an accident. So this is, of course, around the time that grunge is about to explode. They put out on the CZ record, or no, that was later. They put out on a record label called Big Flamingo Ego Records. <laughs> okay. They put out their first seven-inch single. It was Precious Blood was the song. They put that out in 1990. Uh, there were 800 copies were made and sold. The songs Precious Blood and Seaweed were later re-recorded for that Enter the Conquering Chicken album, which is what I played for you. And the song Kings and Queens was re-recorded for the Frenching the Bully album. They followed Precious Blood with the second Skin single in 1990, and then the Spear and the Magic Helmet single in 1991. And then Seattle label CZ Records, um, they were the ones who put out that Deep Six compilation. They signed them. Uh, off of the success of those singles and they put out their first album Frenching the Bully in 1992 and Frenching the Bully is like the album that people point to as like this was like one of the defining Seattle albums of that But like most of these female fronted bands just didn't get the support, didn't get the like national interest. I have always felt like the gets like they had the potential. They they could have been stars, like they could have been massive. But I think sexism and what happened to Mia, unfortunately, just like nipped it in the bud. Yeah. But yeah, so they put out Frenching the Bully in 1992. Mia was, of course, the breakout star. She was the one everyone was talking about. Like the other guys in the band, like Andy Kessler, Matt Dresner, and Steve Moriarty, really good, solid musicians. But I mean, you can even tell listening to it, it was like good, solid, tight punk rock was what they were. Yeah. That's what they were doing. Mia Uh was the thing that elevated them. Yeah. She was the thing. And people talked about it in this documentary. They were saying, like, she was bringing something to the table that nobody else had. Yeah. The River City's reader writing about Frenching the Bully said, it's a stunning document of the talent of singer Mia Zapata. She Mm. sings with such conviction, ferocity, and expressiveness that the lyrics become irrelevant. The band becomes irrelevant. Wow. Um, So I'm going to drop in just a little. I'm going to play a little bit of another song so here's probably my favorite song of theirs it's called here's to your fuck 
Um, <laughs> and it's from uh, the Frenching the Bully album. Andy Kessler talks about it in the documentary a little bit. He says they took the title from the uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Mm. But yeah, so here's here's to your fuck. So Frenching the Bully came out. It's one of the seminal Seattle albums. Everyone's talking about it. And everyone, it sounds like everyone really thought that they were going to be stars. Like they were going to be the next big breakout, you know? Mm -hmm. But then he has a bottle left a bar one night and never Mm. came home. And it just, it just nipped them in the butt. The band did not continue without her. They knew that there was no reason for them to. People point to Mia's murder and Kirk Cobain's death the following year as really like the two events that were just like the beginning of the end of Seattle as like the center of music. One of the reasons why was no one knew who killed her. It was unsolved murder. And so police initially thought she must have been targeted and killed by someone in her immediate circle of friends and within the Seattle music scene. And they just started going and interrogating everyone within that scene. Of course, this created major paranoia within the scene because people are like i don't know i'm going to see this band is that lead singer is he the person who killed me as a potter is my friend is my roommate you know a lot of women i I, in the documentary they're talking to a lot of women in the scene who are like we didn't know who to trust so you know it was this supportive these scenes that were kind of crossing over each other everyone's going to each other's shows they're performing shows in their own houses you know yeah like this whole thing the mass commercialization of grunge already started to change the scene and then her murder it's just like that sense of support just crumbled and then of course Kurt Cobain the following year took his own life so like I said police had no idea who killed her people within the seattle scene were trying to help find her killer they were releasing benefit cds organizing concerts trying to get resources the band the members of her band the surviving members of the gets spent their own money to hire a private investigator a person named lee heron to help supplement the police's investigation but there were absolutely no leads it just seemed like whoever killed her just vanished into thin air 1996 the case was featured on unsolved mysteries this also Mm. didn't open up any new leads it would go on to be featured on american justice cold case files city confidential forensic files and of course america's most wanted it was not solved for nine years okay and then finally after 2002 burglary in florida dna sample was entered into the national database for a man named jesus mesquia he had lived briefly in seattle at the time and of course there was a hit there was a saliva sample taken from her body that matched him he was ultimately convicted um and sentenced to 36 years in prison he died on january 21st 2021 the less said about that motherfucker the better but that is the story of mia zapata of the gets like i said i wish i had more you know about her but i you know there's a lot of like quotes just people talking about just it wasn't just her talent yeah she was supportive of all the other bands she was just like this like larger than life presence Hmm. and just one of the premier talents that came out of that scene and of course yeah she was taken way too young so that is the story of mia zapata and the gets Because I wish it was a more uplifting story because she is an inspiring figure, but you you can't get away from what happened to her. Yeah. And, you know, you said it wouldn't, it wasn't solved for nine years and I went, okay. And that's only because I am relieved that they ultimately found who was responsible for it. Yeah. 
and I don't remember his story. I don't remember anything about him it didn't biographically, matter. and I didn't write it down because I wasn't that interested. Yeah, um, it, it it honestly doesn't matter. Unfortunately, yeah, she, she's or the important. Not unfortunately, but you know, right? I mean, she's the important part of this story. And wow, her the anniversary of her her murder. Or it's not coming up. It passed. It was July seventh, so just a few days ago. Yeah. Um, if you have not heard the gets, there's two albums. Uh, you can find them on streaming. Actually, there's three albums. There's uh, Frenching the Bully, came out in 92, uh, Enter the Conquering Chicken, 1994. And then uh, another posthumous album, Kings and Queens, came out in 1996. Wow. Um, okay. And they're just, they were, they were a great band. I and mean, if you yeah. don't know them, you really should listen to them and remember her. She was a powerhouse. So. Yeah. Ugh. There you go. Great, great story. Okay, well, this has been a four-hour podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so well, feel welcome free back. To, <laughs> welcome back. And I was going to say, feel free to take a heavy hand to editing. There's oh. probably a lot in my stuff that you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it'll it'll re- <laughs> it'll reduce in time before I'm done. <laughs> Jesus. And otherwise, guys, I'm so happy to be coming into your ear holes again. Um, mm-hmm. I've missed you all a lot. I've really missed doing this. Like we said. Uh, there's going to be a couple of other oh, weirdest thing episodes that are going to be happening. They're going to be super cool. Um, also, massive thanks to Danielle for coming on and to all of our everybody who's who's come yeah. on and will thanks come to Rebecca on. Rowland. Yeah. Yes, that was a great episode. It's all been super fun. Uh, we really miss you guys. Uh, and hopefully it won't be too, too long before we're we're back mm. to our normal shenanigans. In yep. the meantime, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye.